Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Trinity Rep. Celebrating 60 years with August Wilson's Fences, a Pulitzer Prize-winning drama returning to Trinity Rep's stage for the first time in 30 years. March 21st through April 28th. Tickets at trinityrep.com. Today on BPR Live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library, a new study finds there were nearly 100,000 Uber and Lyft rides a day on Boston streets. These ride-hailing services were supposed to complement the T, not be a Hail Mary for frustrated commuters. We'll take your calls and ask you if we're at a breaking point when it comes to transportation and congestion. Then it's a story about the Beaux-Arts turning out to be faux-arts. A museum in France has found that half of its collection is fake. GBH's art executive arts editor, Jared Bone, joins us for that and more. At noon, Juliet Kime is here, and you know what that means? It's Mueller time. At Facebook's annual conference, Mark Zuckerberg made it clear that they're going to get even bigger. But what about better? Tech columnist Andy Anako joins us for his take on Zuckerberg and if he's earned, learned anything, that is, from recent privacy scandals. All that coming up next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Egan, you're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. It is Wednesday, our new day, down here at the Boston Public Library in the corner of Exeter and Boylston mm. Street. And I thought when you said 89.7, you were talking about the temperature. <laughs> because let me tell you, this changes It changes everything. everything. We're going to talk about this later in the show. Waiting a long time for this breakthrough. I don't want to be mocked about it either. It changes everything. Okay. Everything. Whatever you Do say. You hear me? I got you. By the way, I, we just said on the promo for that, we have two great books with two great authors. Oh, like we do. Your old pal, Eileen, Eileen McNamara, McNamara, Pulitzer Prize winner from yes. the Globe. Terrific piece on Eunice Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And then David uh, Duchovny, heartthrob from X-Files. And is he ever? Beyond. But is that, that is, it is really a fun book, Miss Summers. He's I mean, multi-talented really, guy. He is small. So they're coming a little bit later in the show. But first, a new study finds that last year there were nearly 100 thousand Uber and Lyft rides a day on Boston streets. I'll do the math for you. It's 35 million in a year. These ride hailing services, as we know, were supposed to complement the tea, not be a Hail Mary for frustrated commuters. The study proves that these services aren't so much an alternative to other modes of transportation. They are now the norm. So we're going to take your calls and ask you if we're literally and figuratively in gridlock. Does our dependence on Uber and Lyft not only clog our streets, put the brakes on any motivation on behalf of elected officials to give us the 21st century transportation system, 877-301-8970. And I don't mean to start off heavy, but it's not coincidence that this story comes about how wildly popular the service is on the same day or the day after this unbelievably heartbreaking story in the New York, was the New York Times, yeah, it's right? Yeah, New York Times. About taxi drivers killing themselves in New York City because their medallions, which to them was like their 401ks that used to be worth a million bucks or something, are now worth virtually nothing. And so, you know, we all focus on the benefit, and I am amongst the guilty parties here, the fabulous benefit of these ride-sharing uh, services, how convenient they are, etc. But there's a cost in this wonderful disruption that I don't think any of us think about, essentially putting not an industry, but people in an industry out of business, or worse in the case of these drivers in New York. So our number is 877-301-8970. If you're just looking at the bright side, you can tell us that too. But if you try to weigh the consequences, including gridlock, and I'll tell you, all you have to do is work on Boylston Street, which we do three days a week here. Uh, it's a, you know what's interesting, by the way? Did you, interesting, I don't know if you Jim? read a piece that I read this morning about the number of 
ride-sharing experiences, rides, whatever, in New York City. And it far exceeds the number of uh, taxicab rides and rides on the subway there. The point being that not only is it, is it taking away people from subways, right. mass transportation, oh, which was not the goal, hugely. but it's also adding more rides where people might have walked or cycled yeah. or something because it's so, in, not it's so convenient or, right, or so which, cheap. Which was, which was really incredible. Yeah, they did one study in Boston that said 42% of people um, would have used uh, mass transit that were other, but, but they didn't because they were taking mm-hmm. Uber or Lyft. And I mentioned before that the, the, the tea has gotten so bad and the buses are so slow. Uh, the, one of my kids lived in Alston. They did the Uber pool to get to work. It's as cheap the as the subway. It, it, cheaper. Cheaper and faster because the buses are so slow and the subway is so bad. Our number is 877-301-8970. This New York Times piece was really heartbreaking. though. Heartbreaking. And my favorite podcast, The Daily, uh, did it this morning. Oh, too, was that they, today? Yes. And they interviewed this driver and one of his best friends was the man who had who hung himself oh, in, his, in his garage. Another guy shot himself in the head in front of City Hall. Um, and, and he was talking about... Taxi com- drivers. No, Uber drivers. I mean, I, no, I'm, ta- sorry. I'm sorry, taxi, taxi drivers. drivers. Yeah. yeah, taxi drivers. And the man that was interviewed had come, was an immigrant from Romania, and he talked about how he came here and he bought his medallion for, I think it was 150, 175 grand, something like that, uh, 30 years ago, and expected it to fund his retirement. He expected he was going to get a million dollars, maybe a million five for that mm. medallion. Now it may not even be worth what he bought it for. And his argument was not against the passengers, people that take Uber and Lyft. His argument was against the city of New York saying, you made us buy these very expensive mm. medallions. You made us pay for these things. You made it, gave all these regulations to taxi drivers you didn't give to Uber. Let's have some equal. Why don't you make them pay a, a licensing That was the whole out. debate about fingerprinting that we used to have with the Uber mm-hmm. representative and mm-hmm. uh, Bill Evans, the commissioner of police, about fingerprinting, yes. about there being a level playing field. And in fact, let's face it, government is bending over backwards to be favorable to the disruptors and not so much to the traditional yeah. industries. Yeah, well, I've done a 180 on this because when the Ubers, uh, Uber and Lyft first came to town, I was so hostile toward taxis because so many times I get in a taxi and the taxi would be dirty and smelly and the guy would be obnoxious and there wouldn't be any way to pay with a credit card and they wouldn't have a, uh, they wouldn't have a what you would call it, a transponder for the airport. Mm. Where do people like to take the taxis? To the airport, right? Mm. And they wouldn't have a transponder so you're sitting in behind 15 cars and the guy didn't have, there was an obnoxiousness like take it or leave it kind of attitude. That has all changed now with the competition from Uber. Um, so I've done a 180 in the sense that they have to make the playing field more level. Uh, because the way it is now, it is totally rigged against But, you know, I have the same intellectual reaction you do, but when you're going somewhere, you're going to call Lyft or an Uber, aren't you? I mean, well, well sort of like complaining about child labor with so Apple in China faster. and then buying all Apple products. I mean, taxis have got to get with the program, too. They've got to do what Uber does so that you know where the driver is, you know he's coming in five minutes, three minutes, four minutes. I mean, who doesn't like to watch the driver get in there? And then if he's not there, then you can call him up on the phone. Taxis are so behind technology-wise in terms of getting to people quickly. And it takes you a long time. Is, how, how, what's the quickest time you ever get a cab? Maybe no, five that's minutes? a good point. Oh, 10 minutes? 15 minutes? And also, gridlock's not that bad. The fact that you'll be able to get an Uber <laughs> in a couple of years and not be able to get anywhere, even though they'll come immediately, is terrific. Well, in, in New York City, what they're doing, the city council is considering limiting the number of Ubers on the street. Bill de Blasio, I believe, proposed this 
uh, either in his he first campaign or, or right when he was elected, uh, the former graduate of uh, Cambridge Ringe and Latin, who's now mayor of New York City, and he got crushed. Exactly right, but, as you but said. that was back in 2013. I think the attitude has changed dramatically now, all these years later, when the same problem is in New York City, where Uber's, Uber and Lyfts are overrunning. I mean, used to be when you were in New York City, the only cars you'd see in the streets were taxis. Right? I mean, you see a few trucks sure. and delivery people, but not that many passenger cars. Now, there's, it's, it's full of Ubers and Lyfts uh, there, too. Anyway, I Do you believe there are, before you say that, 100,000 rides a day in a city? How many people live here? 650,000 or something? I have no idea. And obviously, many more people come in here to work. 100,000 a day in Boston is unbelievable. Well, but haven't you noticed how much worse the traffic is? Yeah, I have. And, and I think that's... You complain about it every day. I complain about it every day, although I... She I, came in late today because she said she wanted to avoid the traffic, which <laughs> is really unprofessional, but well, you do what you want. I came it, in with the traffic. I did notice that my ride was cut in half when so I left So why don't you get later. here come earlier rather than later, and then you avoid the well, traffic by being earlier. Because, you know, when I'm home doing my preparation mm. in peace and quiet, yeah. I don't have to listen to certain, you know, neurotic complaints. Marjorie, you know morning. what that's called? That's called leadership. I'm a leader, and I'm a leader on this show. 877. And you could be a leader, too. 877. Oh, three, thank you. You're welcome. I, just, I could be the co-host, three zero. You could be. Sometimes I'm not sure. Uh, 301-8970 or something like that. Let's go to Nick in Dorchester. You're first on Boston Public Radio, live from the Boston Public Library. Hey there, Nick. Hey, what's going on? What's I like go- how you guys keep taking my phone calls. That's been my fourth time calling in. Whoa. Oh, terrific. Well, thank you for calling. Well, don't disappoint us <laughs> yeah, then, Nick. Go yeah. ahead. So, uh, you know, I, I lifelong resident of the city of Boston. I've grown up. I've seen this entire thing come together, the Uber, the taxis. And um, the taxis dropped the ball. Uber picked it up. Right. That's, that's kind of the end. That's the end all and be all of it. It's, it's, and when it comes to medallions having a certain value, you know, when they bought these things, they knew that they could go up, they could go down. They knew they were going up. And they went down. Yeah, but, but, but Nick, but Nick, what I think is a reasonable expectation, I understand you're saying they made a gamble and they lost. A reasonable expectation if you're the industry and then there's a parallel uh, uh, organization or whatever you want to call it, disruptor, then there's the industry that government will treat it equally. And they don't. I mean, it, 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 uh, like just like the fingerprint issue. I mean, that's a public safety issue, but it's also a fairness issue. Most legislators in most states bend over backwards to pave the way for the disruptors and allow the, the traditional industry employees or contractors, whatever they are, to get swept away. Doesn't that bother you a little bit? No. Well, <laughs> okay, well, you're honest. Anyway, it bothers me. Nick, thanks for your fourth call. We'll look forward to your fifth. 877-301-897. You know, originally I had the same attitude because I watched what happened to the industry that I grew up in and love newspapers. That's a great point. Get totally blown away by, by the Internet. And it, and it really, we still haven't seen the harm that's going to be done because people may notice that they're not going to get the local coverage and they're not going to get the government coverage and they're not going to have the fourth estate as the watchdog and the thieves in government. Because well, look at the not, shrinking of the Herald as a perfect yeah, example. Uh, the, the Boston Herald is a, is a shadow of, it, of its former self well, in, any, in any case. But that is a different thing because... Because we weren't done in by government regulations. That's the mm. difference between the taxi drivers and That's Uber. That's a good point. Is that the Ubers are the disruptors. But as this taxi driver was, was saying in the, in the podcast today, the, the Daily Podcast, it's not a level playing field at all. Yeah, but don't you think we sort of have an obligation to dem- – we, the consumer – 
who is switching to these disruptors, the Ubers, the Lyfts, don't we have an obligation to demand that government provide the level playing field that you and I and people well, like us I'm say saying. is only Th fair? That's what I'm saying. That's, that's what makes it different. We don't have a demand, unfortunately, to insist that people still subscribe to newspapers, which makes me very sad. But we do have, I think, like I said, pressure needs to be put on the city council and the mayor in, in Boston and the cities across the country to say, if you're going to demand X from taxi drivers... Demand the same or something comparable. I agree. From, from Uber. Susan in Cambridge, you're next on Boston. In public radio, Marjorie, going to meet Jim Browdy. Hi. Hi, how are you? Excellent. So I do not take Uber. I refuse to take Uber because exactly the reasons you're talking about. The government regulated, and when they say taxi drive, taxis drop the ball, no, the government forced taxis to be so highly regulated that when this other utterly unregulated company swoops in, it was like taking candy from a baby. I mean, a taxi driver couldn't do anything without a police interview, without a background check, without proving at some point in time they had to take tests to prove they knew the roads, the roads and medallion operators, heavily regulated. The government really screwed up on this one. These taxi drivers, you talk to them, ask them how much their income is dropped with Uber, and some of them, it's 50%. I know that. It's, it's patently unfair. I don't really feel bad for the medallion owners. I feel bad for the taxi. I couldn't agree Remember more. at some point in time, they all had to have energy-efficient cars, and, and, and Uber doesn't have to do any of that. They can drive around in any sort of unenvironmentally friendly car they want, charge whatever rates they want, and the government doesn't step in. It's an outrage, and they, the government needs to get a backbone in this situation and do what's right. Are you a taxi driver? No. I'm an attorney, oh. actually. Well, for, you know, wait, wait, an attorney for taxi drivers? I'm not criticizing nope, you, but nope, you know no, a lot. No, no, okay. no. You, we've met, actually. I'm an immigration attorney. Oh, I, you, I you've been on my show, on. right, Susan? Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. a fabulous immigration <laughs> well, attorney. No, you're Here's great. My pet peeve. My family and I fight all the time. They want to take an Uber. I'm like, no way, not until the playing field's fair. It's outrageous. Good for you, Susan. I'm with you. Thanks for the call. Of course, there are some taxi drivers who are the medallion owners. There, mm -hmm. there are taxi drivers who are in business. Yeah, but there's like the guy who got in all that criminal trouble. What's the guy's the name? Guy that ran the Boston Globe Cab. Exposed was yeah, really a brilliant was, series. Yeah, he, it was horrible what he did. To, he was how he treated them. how he treated people. Yeah, it was it was awful. So. Uh, I don't know how many taxi drivers in Boston are medallion owners or how many of them just employees of these taxi companies. You know, for people who are unsympathetic to what Susan from Cambridge just said, like I'm sure Nick from Dorchester is, I want to return to the example uh, of the fingerprinting. Uh, there is, this was not uh, some economic ploy by people who didn't, you know, were in the taxi industry. People like Bill Evans said it is unsafe. It is unsafe for ride-sharing drivers to not be subjected to the same fingerprinting, et cetera, requirements. Ultimately, Uber and Lyft won on Beacon Hill. So even on a public safety issue, Beacon Hill ended up siding with well, the new industry. they threatened to leave. I mean, there was the Austin situation where the city of Austin and Texas tried to impose these regulations on Uber, and Uber said drop dead I and remember, left. Yeah. And then they won because Texas passed new rules and Uber came back. London, this story we read this morning, mm. uh, has gotten rid of them, though. Uh, they've lost their license to operate there. I don't know what the details are there, but they didn't You know what's going to change, though? Did you read about the California court case? Where uh, they're talking on the emission standards? No, 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 no. no. Oh, I know I that's your favorite that story one. of all time. But one of the big issues that's happening in this new economy is the use of contractors versus employees. Now, what do you have to do with contractors? Oh, yes. You don't pay benefits, etc. The so-called the California gig economy. right, exactly. And the I California love that one too. case narrows the 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 criteria by which you would be allowed to have someone work for you as a contractor, which is obviously far better for the employer, for the Uber, for the Lyft, or for any other similar sort of uh, 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 
company, this makes it a lot tougher. Well, and so that may change the equation as well. Maybe we had the call yesterday from the guy that was talking about how you can't make a living in the so-called gig really economy. You're working 17 jobs and you can't I pay do. the bills when you, even when you add all of them up together. Uh, let's go to uh, Tim in Boston. Hi, Tim. Hi, Tim. Hi, morning, Jim and Madre. I listen to your show every day. And this Thank topic you. is a frustrating topic. Um, it's a wonderful show. I'm an Uber driver. So I'll oh, good. Okay. Defend and yourself, Tim. Defend yourself. <laughs> well, I, actually, first and foremost, I would say there needs to be better regulation. Uber is a free-for-all where anybody can become a, an Uber driver, which I don't think is fair, and I don't think from a customer service point of view it's not good because there are a lot of drivers that are not fair or not hospitable. But the bigger issue we have, we, we tend to claim Boston is a first-class city when it's not. For instance, we don't have 24 public transit. Imagine I'm with you. I traveled, I traveled to Georgia last month. I paid $130 a wrong trip. And my, my Uber trip from the airport to home was $60. That is not logical that I'm paying $130 to fly to Georgia <laughs> for a trip from the airport to Quincy cost me $60. And I'm an Uber driver. Secondly, That's a good point, Tim. Very go good ahead, point. Keep going. A second point is from, from Quincy to Rhode Island is 45 miles. Mm -hmm. It takes 45 minutes to get there. From Quincy to Brookline is 12 miles. On the public transit, it takes an hour and a half. Whereas with an Uber, it takes 20 minutes. So how can we get to Rhode Island, which is 45 miles away, shorter than it takes to get from downtown Boston I can answer the question. You know the answer is because we're not investing. Other than the winterization program, we're not taking seriously the fact that our transportation system is a 20th century transportation system in the 21st century, Tim. So you make all good points. And by the way, to underline what you said a minute ago about the regulation, CNN just came out with a report two days ago that 103 Uber drivers, I think in the last three years, I think it is, have been accused of sexual assault or, uh, or uh, abuse. And, you know, they may say that that's not atypical for that sort of industry, but that's an eye-opening number, which, again, makes a stronger case that regulation is the way to go as an Uber driver himself, Tim says. Tim, thanks for a great call. We appreciate it. 877-301-8970. We are talking about the Uber and Lyft takeover, asking you if Boston has surrendered to ride-hailing services. That conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH. We are broadcasting live from the Boston Public Library, the WGBH studio here on Exeter and Boylston Street. Back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about Uber and Lyft. A new study finds that last year there were—I can't believe this number—there were nearly a hundred thousand Uber and Lyft rides a day on Boston streets. That's 35 million a year. We're taking your calls, asking you if you're among the hundred thousand. Have you become hooked on the convenience of Uber and Lyft? Have you given up on the T? Are you a taxi driver who feels left behind? And are you, when you're doing, if you are one of the hundred thousand, and I am, not every day, but I use it a lot. Do you think about the consequences in terms of greater likelihood of gridlock? Because uh, it is pulling people off the tee. And the impact on the careers of these cab drivers. I'm totally unsympathetic to the cab companies, as some callers said. I am totally sympathetic to the cab drivers. And they're sort of being left behind 
in the dust. And the worst stories, I even hate to mention, these stories about these taxicab suicides in New York City and the New York oh, Times. Oh, they're awful. Are just absolutely, the despair Again, is, are individual drivers who bought medallions. I know. This was their whole business that they ran. So they weren't know. working for anybody. And that was what was really sad, that they were able to make a living, uh, support their families. And these, the guy that was interviewed was a... Romanian immigrant, so he, you know, came here with nothing and earned a nice living, and now he's, as he said, he's going to have to. He may be homeless when he retires. Do you know who has uh, been in the news lately? Who made a ton of money buying medallions in New York City? Who? Uh, I'll give you a hint. Oh, Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen. Oh, Michael that Cohen. Exactly. exactly. Right. Yeah, I forgot about him for a second. That, he was not driving a cab, as no. far as I know, but no, he was he owning was not medallions. Then on the national front page of the National Enquirer, either. Alan Cambridge, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thanks for calling in. Hi. Yes, hello. I Hi. believe you're right on the money about a non-level playing ground. Okay, why? Well, for one thing, uh, Uber drivers don't go through the vetting that we do. We know that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we have a taxi school five nights a week. Uh, we have a, a very exhaustive police check, a records check. Also, what you were mentioning about the danger to some passengers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you might save a few dollars riding with Uber, but would you take unsafe medication to save money? Yeah, but the one thing I don't know, well, I am with you in general, Al. I don't know. When I read this CNN investigation conclusion a minute ago, I don't know how out of sync that is with the danger in cabs. I assume as a cab driver, Al, you would agree that is not a danger-free existence anyway. The one asset you have, as you say, is the background checks. The fingerprint checks are much more exhaustive than they yes. are for Uber drivers. So your odds are a lot better about getting to your location safe. If that's your point, I'm totally yeah, right. Our identification. We wear identification on our shirt. We wear identification all over the vehicle. You can immediately know whom you're driving with. Yeah, you but you, wait, wait. But, but I mean, you also get the identification. If you go on the app for Uber or Lyft, you immediately have a photograph and name of the driver there, too, and the license plate of his or her car, which... You don't have to record like we do with a cab because it's automatically in your phone. So, again, while I'm with you in general, it's not like there, is no, there are no safeguards on the uh, ride-sharing side. But They're you know just what not the, thing, the thing is, Al? It's, it's not necessarily saving a few bucks. It's just, I mean, it's one thing if you're hailing a cab, if you're downtown Boston, you hail a cab. But if you are calling a cab, that's, that's where things really become problematic because the dispatcher says, I'm going to be here in 10 minutes. Well, maybe they will, maybe they won't. You have to keep calling back. Is he coming? Is he not coming? I mean, especially if you're trying to get somewhere in a hurry. Yeah, but Marjorie, the unfairness, there are a lot of cities and towns in Massachusetts, for example, that will not allow you to ha hail a cab on the street. Why is that any different than going on your phone and going on an app to hail a ride There are towns that won't let you oh, hail a cab? Absolutely there not are, even unless know you that. call the phone number or go online. They preclude you that you cannot hail a cab. What towns are Am those? I right about that, Al, or am I not? Certainly so. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of talk about uh, the friendliness of uh, municipalities, cities, to the Uber drivers, and I've never experienced that as a cab driver or cab owner, uh, a friendliness from the city. Al, thanks for your call. We appreciate it. Good luck to you. Which towns are these? I don't, you asked me that already. I well, don't know. Well, the other thing is, I mean, if you're, if you're walking around in Wellesley, you're going to be all day long trying to hail a cab in Wellesley. You know what I'm saying, Jim? I don't spend that much time in Wellesley. Well, the point is, right. the places where you can hail a cab to the cities. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that hailing a cab is even an option in most suburbs. You know what I'm saying? I got you. Let's go to... Unless you do those, one of those gypsy cabs, but those aren't in the suburbs either. Those are in places like the Bronx, where you used to live. I, used, I didn't live. I worked. Okay. Let's go to Nancy and Hi, Nancy. next on Boston Public Radio. Hi. Hey. So I'm, I'm so glad that my last name isn't going to be on the air because I would expect eggs pelted at the house. Why, what are you going to say? <laughs> I'm going to say, 
I'm going to say that I take Lyft. I don't take Uber anymore because of the uh, gender yeah. discrimination crap that was going on there. However, a, there is a ride service out of Boston that just came to mind, Go Safer, S-A-F-R. They do background checks. They, you can choose the gender of your driver. It's a pretty awesome idea. I don't know if you guys know about it. I don't think but so. But what I think is, you know, getting a cab, you are the customer does not come first. A cab driver can say, oh, yes, they do. But anybody who's ever taken a cab company is like waiting. Are they coming? Are they not exactly. coming? Just like Marjorie said. And they're filthy. They smell bad. They're filthy. Why can't, if you want to regulate and you want to have an even playing field, then why don't cabs have to maintain a standard of cleanliness and courtesy and service for the customer? So that's what I got. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the problems. I think that there was a, an arrogance there because there really was no competition. I mean, I guess you could say that it was Boston Cab versus Metro Cab versus uh, what other, other cab company you wanted. But you're right. I think that was why people so quickly left uh, cab companies Absolutely. because you didn't. When I, yeah, you get in a clean car, uh, and a Lyft driver, I'm not going to use the other name, a Lyft driver pulls up to where you are, you get in, it's yeah. clean, they ask, do you want air conditioning on, do you want to open the windows, here's a bottle of water, yeah. let me put your stuff in the trunk, and yeah, it's a much di- yeah, it's a much different it's a much different. When experience. I was in Washington a couple but of months, the, the call, spirit Nancy. of uh, fairness to both sides, when I was in Washington a couple of months ago, uh, uh, the first lift I got in, uh, the I think it was a guy, but whoever the driver was, a man or woman, I can't remember, candy and seltzer or <laughs> or soda. <laughs> what? How much? No, it's on me. Literally. Yeah. Now there's a certain. Something that, uh, I mean, there's a lot of appeal. It's called a vacuum cleaner. Let me be clear here. I I am not, I love, I'm a big Lyft user, and particularly occasionally use Uber. And the reason I do less Uber is because of the former head. Yeah. Yeah. Pig, frankly. So I figured I would. What's he doing? Some, What's Travis doing these know, days? I'm sure, he's. Is that his name? Making Travis? comments about what did he call it? Boober was the was the <laughs> name that was given because of the things that he did. I mean, it's not my name. It's what some of the former people there uh, called it. But that you, know, you can make your own choice. I'm not looking to put him out of business at all. I'm a big user. It's a level playing field. Again, we've discussed this with Commissioner Evans a million times. Have a laying, level playing field. That's fine. And the point about if government about in Lyft? New York City, if government in New York City is requiring the medallion thing, mm-hmm. then government has an obligation to, in some way, cushion the blow to taxi drivers who they forced into the system. It's not like that first caller, Nick, even though he's a good guy, said, you know, buyer beware, them's the brakes. That's not fair. Well, he was saying that they, that they should make the, it, what you've got to pay to start a ca- taxi the same as what you have to pay to start an Uber. There should be a fee that's the same for both of them, and that was what he was complaining about. By the way, did you read this from our staff? No. The Lyft announced in April they make all rides carbon neutral by paying for a range of environmentally beneficial projects to compensate for emissions. No. That's pretty impressive. Well, yeah, it's not that. I, I think the environment is so over under Scott Pruitt. I don't think it's... <laughs> Really? <laughs> we're not going to be able to breathe or drink the but you know water what's great? a couple of years That anyway, story, so I don't have the story in front of me, so I've, I, I don't have all the details, uh, but basically California and a bunch of other states, including Massachusetts, they're it's suing Pruitt. Uh, Pruitt, and I'm so glad they are. To over say, the uh, uh, fuel economy Yes, over the fuel economy standards, and this is putting the auto industry in a big mess because they're going to have a certain uh, cars for California, for California mm-hmm. purveyors, and certain cars for, cars for everybody else in terms of emission standards. So there's hope that the Trump administration will not be able to get, uh, get away with this. And what California has argued, that this is putting the health 
health of, of Americans in danger, uh, not to mention the pocketbooks of Americans in danger because you're going to have gas guzzlers coming back, and, but also the emissions and the uh, air pollution. But, but let me just add to this. We've had this discussion before. One of the things that may be more powerful than litigation is the fact that the auto companies, not unanimously, but a large swath of the auto companies, don't want the emission standards changed dramatically because of what you just said. They don't want to have to make yeah. two separate kinds of cars, one for California and one for the rest so of the that United would States. So that would be beautiful if the auto companies rose up. It would be beautiful. And, but apparently the auto companies were the ones who went in and complained to Trump right after his inaugural, too, that they didn't want to have to comply with Obama's standards by 2025. It's like a Jekyll and Hyde thing. Is that what you're saying? Well, I, I think that they didn't expect California to push back. Hmm. And what is California? One-sixth of our economy or something, something like, like that? that? We have time for so one more good quick for one. Jerry Brown in California. Charles from Hamilton. Hi, Charles. Hi, Charles. Hi, folks. First-time caller, long-time fulminator. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> I Thanks for it. doing both, Charles. What's up? I saw you guys at the library once. I showed you to my grandson, and I think I pretty much convinced him to stay out of radio. Oh, but good. Anyway. Well, there you go. Go ahead, Charles. Um, my, my point is that I am against artificially propping up inefficient businesses. Uh, however you do it, whether it's uh, in, in the case of taxis, for example, it was um, the high cost of entry. You limited the number of medallions. And what happens when you do that is, once you get one, that, that artificially inflates the value of that medallion and reduces any motivation to, to do well. Now, on the one hand, I'd like to see the safety regs match. Yes, I think, I think background checks, maybe we can get a little tax money out of the rides, um, medallions, I mean, uh, IDs, sure. But I, my, 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 I, my thoughts are for the consumers over the decades and decades. Well, see, but I, I hear you. But money I, for local rides, and, yeah. and, and, they were, and they weren't good rides. And now someone has done something with the disruptive new technology. Same way you can get a pizza on your phone, you, you get a ride. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're not obliged to make taxi drivers whole. No, but we I are mean, obliged to treat everybody who does similar work similarly. And that's not, I'm, but I don't disagree with you, Charles, except for what, how the government is handling both ends of the same industry. So beyond that, I'm with you, Charles. Thanks for the call. Charlie tweets in, and Marjorie says, would you and uh, Marjorie have felt bad for the street sweepers in New York City when they went from horses to cars 100 years ago? Actually, I was on a protest for that, Charlie, 100 years ago. we got to go, Marjorie. Okay, coming up, Jared Bowen is here for a roundup of the arts and culture events in and around town. Jared Bowen is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, live from the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Brady and Mardrigan, broadcasting live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. By the way, some of you have emailed or tweeted in saying uh, the streaming's not working. We're working on it, so be patient, and it will come soon. We're bringing you not fake news, but news about fakes with a story about art imitating Art. A museum in France has discovered that half of it, this is unbelievable, half of its collection is fraudulent, with dozens of canvases passing as original works by French painter Etienne Theroux, I hope is his name. Joining us for his take on this, the 2018 Tony nominations, and his roundup of arts events in and around town is GBH's executive arts editor, Jared Bowen. Jared's the host of the TV series Open Studio, which you can catch Fridays on GBH 2 at 8.30. He's also a judge, or a, I don't know what they call it, something, a coach. <laughs> 
on season four of The Great Sing That Thing. Hey there, Jared. How are you? Uh, how am I able to be in all these places? <laughs> just, it is so it is. amazing. It's it is. so Zellig 2018 Mike. on your part. <laughs> it's great to be here. So, nice to see so you. before we get to the other Tony nominations, I just wanted to mention mostly to, to tease Jim, man of the people. He's always talking about Bruce Springsteen. I guess he's he's uh, nominated a category of his own, but no, he's his, getting a special award because the, they want him to sing. Yeah, the tickets, the average tickets for his Broadway show are five hundred. Yeah, about five hundred dollars, yeah. Well, he did an interesting thing. And man he, of the people, Jim. He took man himself. Of the people. Well, this is the man of the people part. Maybe he, uh, he took himself out of Tony contention. Oh, I didn't know that. And uh, but I also speculated that might be for business reasons because if you're in contention, of course, you have to let in all of the Tony voters, and there are only so many seats. And if they're going five hundred dollars, that's a lot of seats that you're losing. But he took himself out of contention. But because of what he's done, the nature of his show and who he is, they've decided to give him a special award this year, as they have done in the past with other figures like Bette Midler. Well, Mar- by I the way, Marjorie and I have taken ourselves out of Mark. That's right. Competition because we, we weren't going to win, <laughs> yeah. so we decided. But before we move away from this, though, I mean, I remember being thrilled to get tickets for Hamilton a couple of years ago for three hundred dollars, and I thought I got myself an unbelievable bargain. And that's the most successful show ever on Broadway. So how does he go? Demand, five hundred dollars. I know, but it's demand Marjorie, for do you Hamilton. Remember, excuse me. Excuse do you me. remember somebody on our show about a month ago saying that he was picked in the lottery and he was a big Springsteen fan right. to get tickets? Yes. And he turned it down even though he could afford the 500 because he was so appalled. Remember that person? I do. No, I don't, actually. That was me who said it on the show. <laughs> oh. I was picked in the whatever it is, tele-show, whatever the hell it is, lottery, and I turned down the tickets. Because it is a scandal. I love Springsteen. Five hundred is insane. It is insane. Okay. So, you, fine. so, so, but just one last thing. Yes. I guess how the, it's just Bruce Springsteen and his band performing, as opposed to like Hamilton. No, it's not his band. Well, it's just Bruce Springsteen, whatever, yeah, which wife. makes it even worse. Okay, him and his wife, versus the entire cast of Hamilton and the music and the production. I, it's I mean, the is, marketplace. Is anybody That's all I can talking say. about? This disgrace. Well, a lot of people. Well, a lot of people don't d- consider it a disgrace. I mean, if you look at concert tickets, a lot of them are really, really expensive. If you want to get any sort of decent seat, and it, it's just the marketplace. People are willing to pay that much money, and that's what happens. And, and but this the- is an overall cr- criticism about theater in general that you have these big commercial shows like this, and it's definitely not art for all when ticket prices are five hundred dollars. Yeah. Okay. There you well, go. while you're on, I don't it, remember you're, you're saying about winning any lottery. I, I think you're I making t- that I up. I have told this. No, I which won- lottery did you I, win? Well, you I, have to enter a thing to even be allowed to buy a ticket mm-hmm. at Springsteen, even though they've extended the run. I think yeah. at least two times. Two times in a row, I got in. They said, "Do you want cheaper tickets?" So, like two to three hundred. I clicked on every date there was not one available. And I was so aggravated that I had to go into the 500 to 800 range. I said, forget this. That may have been me. I was, ho- I so, no, 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 I was filling in with you one day when yeah. you were talking about that. I was with you? Well, I know that Marjorie and I look alike, so yeah, we do. it's easy to confuse. Okay, we'll move so on before, from no, that. Who else is no, let's not move on. Yeah, exactly. What, is there anything else to know about the Tony Awards? Except let me tell you what I read about this. There are only 30 shows that are eligible. Which essentially means everybody gets nominated. I mean, what's? I'm serious. <laughs> well, it, it might be true. Uh, first of all, I feel a little validated because I think you might made, have made a little fun of me for SpongeBob the Musical when yes, I talked it's about yes. a lot of and nominations. It has 12 nominations 12 along nominations. with Mean Girls. Tony, Fe- uh, Tina Fey gets a Tony I nomination know, for writing, for, right? For writing, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, yeah, I think some of these are very legitimate. Angels in America, 11 nominations. I'm seeing yeah. that this week. I'm very excited. It's supposed you to be are? this extraordinary play. Wow. Same for Harry Potter, uh, a play in two acts and. Uh, Carousel. I'm just Carousel. hearing these rapturous reviews of that I show. I know. I love the music. For, that's one of my favorite musicals of all time. The music from Carousel is so beautiful and so romantic. 
And, oh. and yeah, they've taken a new sensibility, new choreography with Justin Peck, who just choreographed, uh, choreographed a piece for the Boston Ballet. Uh, they, they had his piece in their recent program. What's the name of that uh, Doogie Howser guy who hosts these awards? Is it Doogie Howser <laughs> who hosts this? Neil Patrick Harris, except he's not doing the, it this he year. Is it's fabulous. He he's is a host fabulous. Who's the host? Uh, Josh Groban and Sarah Bareilles are hosting oh, this I'm year. Oh, I'm a big Sarah June 10th Bareilles. at Radio City Music Hall. And oh, what's wow. Amy Schumer getting an award for? Uh, Nomination. Yeah, Nomination. Uh, lead actress in a play uh, oh, okay. for her play, uh, Meteor... Uh, it's okay. But she, she's, she's, she's in a play. I just wanted to double check because she's taking a lot of grief over her I Feel Pretty, the movie you know, that she made. I know. We talked about that. And I, I yeah. saw your column about that. Yeah. That's right. I think it's tough when okay. you're 20, wait till you're 50. Can we go back to this French museum? Uh, how can a museum have half of the exhibits be fake? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> easily. <laughs> easily, actually. Easily, yep. really? So yeah. can you tell the story quickly, if you don't mind? So That's the, great. the story was uh, in the Boston Globe by way of the New York Times. And as you mentioned, uh, it's a museum in the south of France dedicated to this artist, Etienne Terrousse, who died in 1922, friend of Matisse, uh, as, I, I think, a way to draw tourism to the area. They decided to build this museum around his works, and they began collecting in earnest uh, just within the last few years. But it turns out that 82 of the 140 <laughs> pieces they have are fakes. Uh, I think it became obvious after a while, especially when they started seeing the smiley faces, the yellow smiley faces in the work. That was a joke. They didn't actually see those, but it became <laughs> apparent to some people that there, there wasn't the proper vetting happening here. Although, I will say that this happens, and probably more than people realize. And so, uh, and th in fact, it happened in France just a few years ago, as this article also points out, when the Palace of Versailles bought what they th thought were two chairs in the reign of in the age of King Louis XV that turned out to be fakes. Uh, but there was a, an exhibition that really drew my attention to this a few years ago out at the Springfield Art Museums. It was called Intent to Deceive. And they pointed out at that point that 30 to 40% of artwork in the market now is fake. In museums or in the market? In the market. However, to your point, Jim, after I covered that exhibition, I talked to a museum official, who I agreed not to name, who told me that you will definitely see fakes on museum walls. Who is that? I'm not telling oh, you. Sorry, I thought I could trick into doing it. Because you, you have to think at the time in which a lot of museums, especially on the East Coast, built their collections, there wasn't the vetting that we can do now, especially through technology and analysis. And part of the problem is, so you have an institution here, like the Harvard Art Museums, which has a great conservation lab, great equipment, the same for the Worcester Art Museum and uh, the MFA. They're able to do these tests to look at underpainting and, and find oh, out right. times of yeah. pigments and whatnot, but a small museum like this, they don't have a way of knowing. Doesn't Trump have a fake Renoir on his <laughs> yeah. plane? Didn't we talk about that in 2017? Uh, he's got a fake Renoir somewhere, I I'm not so, sure. He's got ahead, that okay. huge, huge he painting claimed, of himself yeah. that he bought yeah. for like 20 grand or something like that, the painting of himself and his tennis togs. But it, it's fairly but easy for artists to do this, and we talked about this recently with the play, the Bakelite Masterpiece that was in town, uh, because you look at the psychology of the people who are doing this, it's often by artists who aren't successful in their oh, we own did talk right. about this. And That's so they right. say, well, if you're not going to take me for my own artistic prowess, mm -hmm. fine, I will give you this in the name of artist whatever, and then able to pass that off. Let me just ask you one question, though. Is it is it most mostly intentional in in the museums, or is it a mistake, or is it just? They're not purposely putting up fraudulent. Well, stuff. No, no, no. I, okay. I, no, it's a, it's no. a mistake. I mean, there are whole codes of ethics well, be. that museums have to adhere to. I, I think there does become a question after a while: Do you get a little bit lazy because something is so easy and yeah. so cheap that you want to bring it into your collection? I also pointed out uh, nobody really talked about this, but there was a story I noticed in the New York Times re recently about a man in Massachusetts, Templeton, Massachusetts, who had this antique Civil War s memorial secretary, is how it was described, from I think 1876, uh, and he. He, he 
it was a regular secretary that he trumped it up to make it look like this antique masterpiece, sold it to an antique dealer who then sold it to the uh, Wadsworth Antheneum in Hartford, and they just bought that. So this just happened, so it's still happening. Well, and you finally know, the forger what they came say forward. about Templeton. Very what suspicious crowd up there. You know who the curator of the museum up there is? Donald Trump's former doctor. The, uh, we're <laughs> going to talk Bor about him. Dr. Like. Bornstein. So, Jared, <laughs> Dr. Bornstein. <laughs> <laughs> I am dying to see this HBO thing on uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, RBG. so am I. Here's, so a little, am I. here's a little clip from, the, obviously, the, the Ruth uh, Bader Associate Ginsburg. Justice. Yes. Here is uh, a little clip from the new documentary. Men and women are persons of equal dignity, and they should count equally before the law. You won't settle for putting Susan B. Anthony on the new dollar. <laughs> <laughs> when they would say things like this. How did you respond? Well, never in anger, as my mother told me. That's, that would have been self-defeating. Always as an opportunity to teach. I did see myself as kind of a kindergarten teacher in those days because the judges didn't think so sex discrimination existed. By the way, the male voice in the middle was William Rehnquist, for those who didn't identify. Did you see this thing? I did, yeah. Is it great, I hope? It's a really, really fascinating documentary. First of all, for, for just little tidbits you, you learn, it's called RBG because, of course, he's taken on this, this, this guise, this image of the notorious this RBG, RBG right. uh, books, tattoos, yeah. T-shirts, everything about her. But this really fundamentally gets at the beauty of who she is because of her process and thinking. And that is really well illustrated in this documentary by Betsy West and Julie Cohen. It opens in theaters on Friday. Oh, great. Uh, and you, you oh, get I this. Thought, is it HBO or was I wrong? Is it HBO produced? It, it, I'm not sure of the okay, agreement, but I know I'm it sorry. opens okay. in theaters first on, on Friday. But they really get at who she was in terms of creating the, the American judicial landscape as we know it today, especially for fighting for equal rights, gender rights, uh, in which she had groundbreaking cases about women in the the military, but then also men not getting the benefit, uh, taking on the case of a man who didn't receive the benefits he should have after his wife died. So she did that for, for equality. But it takes you back to the very beginning and get this image of a young Ruth Bader Ginsburg in New York leaping across garage roofs. I mean, she was somebody who was boundless and had this energy and undaunted even as a child. It, did they explore at all the relationship or touch on with, with her and Scalia? Oh, which absolutely. One of the most beautiful, for those, this beautiful love affair, friendship, obviously, between arguably the most liberal jurist on the Supreme Court and the most conservative. And they were like best buds, Amazing right? friends and opera buddies. They both mm. had a passionate love for the opera. She has a passionate love for the arts, seeks out museums and opera, especially in uh, New Mexico in the summertime. Uh, one of the interesting... You, you get a sense of really her character. A few interesting things. One, and you mentioned Scalia, she, she's not somebody who laughs a lot. In fact, her children talked about the keeping a diary about the number of times mom laughed. <laughs> it's not very well filled out. But then they have these great scenes with uh, Ginsburg and Scalia, and she's laughing at his jokes. They just really thoroughly enjoyed each other and she obviously thoroughly enjoyed her relationship with her husband and that is just one of the Can't great love stories and how much he supported her uh, the way she works she, she apparently she barely sleeps she would work all hours of the day and night and then just catch up on all of her sleep on the weekend her husband would have to go to the Supreme Court to bring her home just to remind her to sleep or to eat uh, just a fascinating and by the way figure. she's I think
think in her mid 80s. She's 85, had cancer, what, two says, times, two I think. Times. And she stayed had, on the bench the entire yeah. time. Didn't she have pancreatic cancer, which usually kills you. She's, she's tough. As her trainer says, because you, they take you into her workout routine, she's like a cyborg. <laughs> it's a great sweatshirt. She's got on Super Diva. There she is, this little old 85 year old grandmother um, and with her little barbells. I mean, it's hysterical. Genius. By the way, there's a good friend of yours who used to be, both of yours, who used to be a friend of mine, who now uh, texts me quite regularly, pointing out the mistakes I make on the air. Uh-huh. Uh-oh. The Renoir in his apartment, uh, was in his apartment at Trump Tower, this unnamed person oh. told me. The original is very much at a museum <laughs> in Chicago. Thank you to this unnamed <laughs> source for the correction. So, Jared, you've seen a bunch of plays in time, and since we don't have a huge amount of time, why don't you do them in reverse order of closing, so that if we don't get the one, we can do it next week while it's still around. So you pick what is... Uh, Next, is All right. that okay? We'll, we'll start with Wig Out, which okay. closes uh, May 13th, and this is presented by Company One Theater and the ART, and it's at Oberon. I just saw it last night, and this is pretty fascinating, too, because it's taken me into a history that I didn't know anything about, and that's the drag ball history. I didn't either. And so you start in this play in the, the club space of Oberon. If, you know, if you've been there, you know it is a club, and uh, everything sort of unfolds all around you. Uh, but you see this young man, and he meets Miss Nina on the train and she brings him into the house of light which is uh, the, the drag house that has become really her family and and this is a play by Terrell Alvin McCraney who won, co- uh, won the Oscar for co-writing Moonlight a couple of years ago and he's really taking us into the, the drag culture and how that becomes family for people who are dealing with issues of sexuality and gender and masculinity and what that means in culture uh, into a place where they can feel safe and they have creative expression uh, and and the plot revolves around the fact that you have this young man who's drawn into it, and he, he gets a new view onto the world. Uh, and the House of Light gets a Cinderella ball throwdown challenge from the House of Diabolique. Oh gosh! And uh, so they've they've got to come up with what they're going to do to contend in this match, this Cinderella ball match uh, by midnight. Uh, but what's interesting are those themes that develop around family and the way it's staged. And the black ball, uh, drag ball history, I didn't realize was a part of black queer culture dating to the mid-1800s and was huge in Harlem in the 1920s and 30s, and he's really excavated this history. Is here. the Oberon part of the ART? It is. It's it their is second the, stage. It is. Yeah. Okay. And Harvard Square, for those who are, just as you're about yeah. to enter Harvard Square on uh, a mess. So we're talking to Jared Bowen. Next, Jared Bowen. I'm allowing you to pick only because we don't want to leave one out that's closing in the next week or so. Uh, well, the next one that uh, is closing May 19th, I also just saw this weekend, is a revival of by Zeitgeist Stage Company of Love, Valor, and Compassion. You might remember, oh, yes. Oh, yes. This is the play that won the Tony by uh, Terrence McNally in 1995. And this really immerses us in a world, too. It's, it's 1994, and you have eight gay male friends who are coming together at a Dutchess County house of Gregory, a Broadway choreographer, and their friend. And these are friends who've had this community of, of each other and family for years. But this is 1994, so it's way before gay marriage is accepted and same-sex rights. The AIDS crisis is still burning through the community, and it's burning through the lives of these men. And this play is set throughout uh, Memorial Day, July 4th, and Labor Day weekends. And so we find them uh, really coming together, pushing, pulling, prodding each other. Uh, Some have successful relationships, others don't. Uh, One of the overriding themes of this is in a world where they don't necessarily matter, they matter to each other and how do they endure, especially through their art, because they all have connections to this choreographer in one way or another. So how do they survive? 
I thought this was really tenderly directed. You have a great ensemble who immediately, immediately pull you into this notion of family. There are scenes where they're lying out on a, a raft or on the lawn, and you, in this tiny little space at the BCA, you feel like you're there with them. You know, I, I was just thinking when you were talking about these first two plays that you described, is we were talking, uh, decrying the $508 for Bruce Springsteen. And by the way, a lot of Broadway shows are equally or at least close they to are? that prohibitively expensive. Yeah, they are. And Hello, Dolly, most recently. A huge yeah. number of the things you talk about are totally affordable. Absolutely. And Boston and great. I mean, really affordable kind of thing. So if people are decrying the notion that they can't go to all the big name things in New York or even here sometime, there are a lot of these wonderful plays you review and feature that are totally within people's budgets. Jim, you've asked me this before about do, do you feel different to see a show on Broadway? But yes, for good reasons, because you go to a show like uh, Wig Out, where it's happening around your love, valor, compassion, and you're in these tiny little spaces, and I think it's easier to get lost in these worlds mm -hmm. instead of being in a big official Broadway house yeah, where, where it's, uh, it's, it's all very orchestrated around yeah, you. Yeah, no, it's, it's to me, I mean, it's not the same because, of course, you're not seeing a Broadway play in something as big as the, as the Boston Garden, but it reminds me of the difference between going to see the circus in a place like the Boston Garden and going to see the Big Apple Circus. It's a totally different experience when you're yeah. close to the stage. I mean, one isn't necessarily better than the other, but they, they are different. Okay, so uh, the third play on your list, which uh, we are going to get in. Which is closing May 20th, and this is Top Girls. This is at the Huntington oh, Theatre Company through May 20th. This is a very uh, well-known Carol Churchill play, and it, it's told out of order, and it to such marvelous effect here. So it opens with this dinner party that Marlene is having, and she's invited all of these great figures from history, from a 19th century British oh, yeah. explorer to a 13th century Japanese concubine slash Buddhist nun to a Flemish folklore warrior, Pope Joan, uh, which I'm sure, Marjorie, you're interested in <laughs> yeah. because, of course, she's considered the first female yep. pope if she actually existed. So all of these women come together, and at first it's a celebration. They're eating, they're drinking wine, they're celebrating the fact that Marlene has just landed a top job at this London employee, uh, employment agency over one of her male colleagues, and this is the time of Thatcher, England, so this is way earlier than women had a lot of executive jobs. And they're celebrating until they start drinking, and then they start to talk about about what it took to get there and how difficult it was, especially in the case of Pope Joan when she was discovered and what became of them. And then the, the, the piece moves forward and you see what her life is like in this employee employment agency and it backs up again and you see what her life is like at home and nothing is easy. It's not easy to have everything and move forward to have this job and uh, really wonderfully directed, very tight, very timely and uh, a great cast in this Huntington production. It's a great moment for theater, I think, right now. What are you looking at? I was just looking to see what happened with, with Pope Joan when she was discovered, because I don't remember if she was killed or if she was allowed. No, she wasn't killed. Hmm. Okay, she just died. Okay, yeah. just, ch just checking. In, in the play, it's, it's not in a good way because she becomes pregnant, and when that's discovered, yeah, they, 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 the church doesn't take well to that. Yeah, no, they didn't, they didn't like that. I just want to make sure she wasn't killed, and I don't think she was. Okay. Okay, Next. What? Next. Fitchburg. You have uh, a minute. Okay. Fitchburg Art oh, Museum. Oh, Fitchburg. This picture is so creepy. People can't see it, of course, because this is the radio. <laughs> that is a very good but point. It's showing it, it is, it's Why don't you hold it up? And can, maybe they can. It's called it. The Blue Lagoon. <laughs> hold it up a little higher. Why oh, it's there so it is. creepy. Uh, well, actually, what I'm talking about is a fantastical political here, which is a show of oh, five, whoops. Five, five different... Hold up ones. anyway, Marjorie, we'll, we'll get to that next week. Okay. Yeah. All see, right. so look at all the people flocking to the windows That's here. That's exactly to see it. But uh, fantastical political is a show at, at the Fitchburg Art Museum. It's up through uh, June 3rd, and this is five artists, and you walk in, and you... 
you really get the sense that you're seeing one thing, and it often revolves around beauty, and then you realize you're seeing something else. Or, for instance, some French toile wallpaper with pretty images, or uh, this slinky silhouette dress, but you get closer and you realize the dress is actually made out of money, $1,124 to be exact. The toile wallpaper is actually uh, images of animals that have been malformed by bioengineering. So these are artists who take you into these pieces, and then you really have to think about them. One of the ones that I was captivated by was by Mohammed Hafez, who is an architect and artist, and these are all local artists, I should say, local to New England. Uh, he has created what he calls the Baggage Series. It's an open suitcase, and this building springs up out of it, but you look into it, and it's just completely been destroyed and shelled, except for one tiny little beautiful flower that exists. He's Syrian. It's a commentary on the Syrian Civil War. The other major showcase piece of this is by Dave Cole. He created... Oh, uh, this is the steamroller thing? The music yeah. box. Oh, this is really playing cool. Playing the national anthem? 6,000-pound steamroller. I'm going to go yeah, see. Playing the national anthem in this completely garbled, nerve-wracking, rattling way. If you come down to the studio and stand outside the window on <laughs> Bolton Street, Marjorie will hold up the photographs. <laughs> this is pathetic. Yeah, I had to correct myself on Pope Joan. She was, of course, thought to be fictional. But, oh but there was a, some people think that she died in childbirth. Some people think that after she gave birth, she was okay. killed. And that's no, how dragged God, behind a horse yeah. and stoned to okay, death. Okay, so Jared, unfortunately, oh. we got to speak about Pope Joan. No time for open studio. So check it out. Quickly, 10 seconds. Yeah, t- what do tell you us, got? tell us. Great long interview with John Lithgow. <gasps> oh, I'm the so character jealous. Actor. I oh. love John yeah. Lithgow. We go through his history in the show this you week. You do? Yep. Oh. Thank you very much, Jared Bowen. I'm <laughs> sorry for the history. tangent on Pope Joan. <laughs> yeah. Up next, oh, and, and Open Studios on 8.30 Friday nights. Okay, fine. Up next, Juliet Kayyem on national security issues. Today at noon, live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library, Mueller's 49 questions for Donald Trump has raised about a 1,000 more. What does Mueller know? Why are the questions so broad? Is he laying a minefield? And if so, why does Trump want to walk into it? And if Trump doesn't fall for it, will Mueller subpoena him? National Security Analyst Juliet Kayyem joins us for her take on this and more. From the Russia collusion inquiry, we look at the DOJ's investigation into accusations that AT&T and Verizon colluded to prevent their consumers from easily switching carriers. Tech writer Andy Anatko joins us for this, other headlines, and some new product reviews. Eileen McNamara gives the Kennedy family's dynamics a twist, making Eunice Kennedy the civil rights star of the Klan by way of her new biography. And actor, singer, and best-selling author David Duchovny is here to talk about his new novel, Miss Subways, a reimagining of an Irish tale set in modern-day New York. All that coming up on Boston Public Radio. From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio. Hey, Tim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. It is Wednesday. We are at our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Hello, and as Jim. I said earlier, it's in the 80s, which means it changes what, Marjorie? Changes everything, Jim. Everything. Everything. Exactly. Including my hair. Thank you very much. So Trump's former doctor, Dr. Bornstein, came back from Woodstock just long enough <laughs> to say that his infamous report on the excellent health of candidate Trump was written by, drumroll, Trump himself, 
Should we care? Joining us for a take on this and other headlines is National Security Analyst Juliet Kayyem. Juliet's professor at Harvard's Kennedy School, CEO of Zemcar, and a CNN contributor. Hello there, Juliet. Hello. How are you? Excellent. Thanks. Good, Good to see you. Good to okay. be back at the library. I'd like to go straight to Dr. Bornstein, but I'm going to restrain myself. Good. <laughs> you want <are. laughs> Why? We'll get Why? There. He hasn't. We'll get there. Why would you? He's, he's totally not restrained. Because Jim insists we have to start with the 49 questions. Oh, so we're going to start with the 49 uh, like questions. Like Passover. That supposedly... <laughs> what the 49 questions? Okay, the fine. wise child okay. said. The 49 questions that supposedly came from Jay Sekulov, the president's attorney, yes. uh, uh, that he deduced that Mueller wanted to ask the president of the United States. Uh, what do we make of these 49 yeah, questions? So and will the president ever be asked any of them Well, it's Robert a Mueller? great... It's just a... It's important to put that piece of it, that these are, are Jay Sekulow's uh, questions and not Mueller's. Yes, uh, it's, which to has highlight sort of been that. glossed over, Yeah, I think. because the New York Times made it sound like it was Mueller's questions. Mueller's questions. Yeah. It wasn't. It was Jay's um, uh, interpretation of where Mueller's people were going, um, which is interesting because it actually highlights what they think, the defense team thinks, are their vulnerabilities, which includes, of course, obstruction of justice. They seem to be focused on that, but other questions related to... Uh, uh, you know, collusion and, and Jared Kushner and co-conspirators and Manafort. Um, and so uh, so there's a couple takeaways. One is if, if it's true that Mueller gave them a theory of what the questions are going to be, um, you know, the president's in big trouble if, if, in, in terms of at least this investigation. Look, he can answer them sufficiently, all the questions sufficiently, in a way that does not implicate him in any criminality. But to the extent that the Russian, the, the Trump team wanted everyone to believe that this case, you know, uh, you know, was either a witch hunt or had come down to something as silly as obstruction of justice and, oh, that's just Donald Trump. It's not. It's actually quite big, and it's getting into almost every piece of, of, of the Trump campaign and the Trump presidency. But I can't be the only one that wonders why... It- why the president's legal team would leak these questions. You know what John King said yesterday? John King from CNN, your station, said to us when we asked that very question, his contention was Sekulow and Trump's lawyers, as evidenced by the fact that most of them either quit or don't go to work for him, couldn't get the message across to his own client forget this notion of yours that you're going to go and duel with Mueller and win. So he leaks to the New York Times essentially to speak to his own client yeah. to hopefully scare some religion into Donald Trump. So is Donald that, Trump decides that to do that's it. That's actually what the reporter who had the original story in the New York Times said on a podcast, that it was literally this was a sort of uh, Donald Trump, you're not getting this kind of thing. How perverse um, is I know. It, well, I mean, and, and then, of course, Trump responds in the very way you wouldn't want him to, um, as if you were his lawyers, which he, you know, goes off on Twitter and stuff. So... You know, look, it's just, it's exactly like the chief of staff role for Trump. You think, you know, there's someone who's supposed to be there to sort of tame him. There will be no taming. And the same is true on the legal theory. So he's, you know, so if you decide to be his lawyer, you know, cry me, you know, don't cry me a river. This is, you know, you know what you're getting into and you have to decide whether you would want to defend someone who is unable to 
defend himself, let alone may have been responsible for, you know, conspiracies against the United States. So there was another big debate last night on CNN, which you also appear on. One of the best uh, ever with yeah. Tubin and Dershowitz. Oh, there's a right. Jeffrey Tubin. Tubin, a former student of Dershowitz. I think CNN should just be TNN, Tubin <laughs> News Network. I could watch him I'm all with you. day. Well, you know who else I could watch all day long? David Gergen and David Axelrod. I love when the, the two yeah. Davids are on together yeah. because they're the wise statesmen, you know, hearkening back to right. a time of greater civility and so forth. Right. Dream, yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I love the two the two lawyers because they're so smart. Well, they were debating uh, whether uh, Trump will we'll ever testify yeah. and whether Trump will take the fifth uh, if he's subpoenaed by Robert Mueller. Yeah. And Tubin said that he thought he would. Yes. Um, yeah, but, yeah, but don't jump to the fifth until you get to the subpoena issue. I was incredulous. A guest, Bruce Singel, on my yeah. show last night with Martha Coakley, said the same thing. He said, I used to work with Bob Mueller here when he was the U.S. Yeah. attorney. Believe me, he will subpoena him if, I, if, he, if he doesn't can. voluntarily come. And I say to myself, he's going to subpoena the president of the United States and then be in litigation for, what, a year or two years when Trump's own lawyers challenge the subpoena? Is that, do you subscribe yes, to that notion? Yes, I subscribe. Now, remember, you Ken do. Starr subpoenaed Clinton until Clinton voluntarily did it. So oh, the maybe subpoena, as a tactic as to a get tactic him. As a tactic to get him okay. forward so that you don't have to litigate mm-hmm. in court for a year. But, look, I mean, everyone, I don't know Mueller, but everyone who does know him says he's on his own time frame. He's not listening to the noise. He doesn't care about the uh-huh. midterms. He has a mandate, and that mandate is not so much the indictments or, you know, I mean, it's about the indictments and the plea arrangements and you know, remember, Mueller's mandate is a mandate to determine whether there was collusion between a foreign power, Russia, and the Trump campaign. Whether that results in a lot of people in jail or not a lot of people in jail, might, jail might be, is, is not totally relevant uh, to Mueller's mandate. He, can't, he has to issue a report. If he had no indictments, it doesn't matter. You know, I want to stay on this, the thing that Marjorie raised just a second ago, though is this notion that if he is subpoenaed... He would take the fifth. That there, no president in American history has taken the fifth. Right. And there is a belief that Donald Trump would take yes. the Fifth Amendment? I mean, you're nodding like, yes, he I mean, I just, that. I mean, how could he answer questions? I well, mean, wait how? a second. And so then the thing that follows from that, and this is something that Tubin and Dershowitz right. also said last night, so then to get him to talk... Does uh, Mueller offer him immunity Could from prosecution? Him, right, so that he can get the story of what happened out. That's a lot of ifs down the, down the pike, but it, it could be possible. Now, we have, um, some, we have some history here in Massachusetts, people that? taking the fifth. Remember, we had Billy Bulger, who was then the president of, of UMass Amherst, yeah. took the fifth and asked questions about his brother, brother Whitey Bulger, right. the now-convicted serial killer and head of the uh, Irish mob, such as it was in South Boston. And that... Worked out well for a while. For until Mitt Romney forced him out of his <laughs> right, job. Exactly. Can I tell you one of the but funniest also- one of the funniest moments in recent in television history in Taking the last the twenty fifth? years is Bill Bulger is testifying <laughs> in front of Congress yeah. and your former colleague at the Herald, yeah. Howie Carr, has gotten to the hearing early so that almost like a parrot. He is positioned when the camera, right which is behind. in a fixed position. Oh, yeah, the, right behind. He's literally on, I can't remember if it was his left shoulder or his right shoulder. Every time you look at Bulger, right. you see Howie Carr making a face in the Rolling background. Rolling his eyes. Like, right, it's like the early photobomb. It's yeah. like their first photobomb. That he's, may have been the first. That was, right? exactly. Yeah. But I mean, so 
you were of uh, the, the common sense, the conventional wisdom is that these questions are going to scare even Donald Trump into saying, I can't go mano a mano with yeah. Mueller. And then you subscribe to the notion that there will be a subpoena to a grand jury, and then we see if he voluntarily testifies under right. the threat of the grand I think, I jury think, subpoena. And, or, okay. and so, but there's another reason for those questions, and this is, you know, it's hard to know because th these are. Trump team's interpretations of the questions. What I found fascinating in the series of questions, obviously, we, a lot of it we, we recognize, some of it was new, was the extent to which it seemed to try to pull out co-conspirators. So there's references to other people, there's references to Jared. And so part of it was also the extent to which, you know, are, are there others that Mueller wants to pull out, much like what he did with uh, other, you know, with Mike Flynn and other that might be willing to plead because they, uh, they know something. What do you so make this of the... Is, I mean, you know, look, we know 10% of what's going on, and we know it all from the Trump team, so we have to put a gloss around that, but the idea, it never, the one thing I can say with certainty from what I know about Mueller and the people who know him, there is no way that man, Mueller, is coming out with a report that is only about obstruction of justice. It, it, there is no way that there are underlying issues which will animate him. And well, he would not all, be spending this time. But you don't even have to know anybody. Despite Trump tweeting yesterday, there are no questions about collusion. Oh, I know. I know. There's an endless stream right, right. of questions about collusion. But that's the two plus collusion. two equals five aspects okay. of Trump, right? If I say it enough, you know, you know, my 30% my will believe it. But... Stay okay, tuned. we're talking to Julia Kayyem and Marjorie. You have been very restrained. I've been very restrained. Why, what no, happened? Wait, no, because she really I wanted to discuss Dr. Oh, Bornstein. You guys were looking at your computers. I'm like, did something <laughs> no, happen? No, no nothing, nothing has happened. Oh. So people may remember Dr. Bornstein. He was kind of the aging hippie Woodstock doctor who yeah. said that uh, Donald Trump, uh, if he were to become the president, this is before he became president, would be the healthiest individual ever to hold the presidency. Well, we found out some great stuff about this. First, Dr. Bornstein says that he didn't write the letter at all about Donald Trump's wonderful health, that he just dictated from Donald Trump. Right, made the letter it up. It sounds he like Donald Trump went along, and then the second story, the even better story. I mean, that's pretty crazy in and of itself, uh, but it's kind of in keeping with everything else that goes on. His uh, he, then he said that after he, uh, at, this is Dr. Bornstein. After Dr. Bornstein told the New York Times that uh, Pr President Trump took a drug to promote hair growth, hair growth that is. Trump aides staged what the doctor called a raid of his Manhattan yeah. office and removed all of Trump's medical files. He described this as being a traumatic situation. He said he felt raped, which is a little much, frightened and sad. But in any case, the president's bodyguard, Keith Schiller, he's not there anymore, was there, along with a lawyer from the Trump organization and a third guy. They came in and stole all yeah. the president's medical records and... Dr. Bornstein, to top it all off, is demanding from the New York Times a large donation to Tufts University, his alma mater, for is the he stress he's gone scratch? through. I didn't know that like that, Why hasn't the Boston Globe done that story? They always <laughs> exactly. do the linkages. The Boston Globe. Local like, angle. Ties, Can local I throw local something angle. into this before Come on, Juliet, Boston Globe. You're sitting. Come be, on. Before Juliet comments, yeah. well, the, the, the notion of Donald Trump dictating the letter to this pathetic, unethical doctor mm -hmm. who I right. think should lose his yes, license absolutely. over this. Uh, which also puts into question the Ronnie Jackson uh, evaluation. We'll get to that in a second. I, there's a credible case to be made, which CNN made last night, that this was not a raid. Is that maybe it didn't comply with all the HIPAA regulations. Maybe there was not a properly executed right. release. 
But it is not unusual for someone like the President of the United States to, to say, I want my medical records. And what at least it's CNN, not unusual? What CNN no, was reporting is when they went and they asked for a copy, which is the traditional way in the original state with the doctor, his copying machine, machine. was not working. He couldn't figure out how to and work And as it. a result, they took yes. the record. So I'm not sure it's quite as I think there might be somewhere in between. I do think it's true that, like, you know, obviously you're President of the United States. Your medical records are going to go to, a, to, to a, a, you know, a doctor at the White House. I do think it's weird, like, they the bodyguard? call him or well, let that him is know. Weird. That is That's true. what makes it sound like a raid, well, and it, it makes it sound like there's a hostile thing. three men physically show up yeah. at your office. Unannounced. De- unannounced, demanding someone's record. Yeah, wait, 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 wait. There's a reason they didn't call him. Because they were read, worried. That- there was no phone at the ashram. And <laughs> yes. so... I don't think they could get. I don't think they could get Dr. Borns. That was good. Do you that believe was this guy was, was Trump's doctor for thirty-five no. years? Yeah, can we just no. take that that stroll down memory lane? <laughs> I mean, that's what I, th- I think. Um, uh, uh, Dan Dresner here, another Tufts, Tufts professor yep. who, whose tweet uh, Twitter feed is fantastic. Dan tweeted out, you know, the problem with the Trump team, you know, as they all turn on each other, is everyone is more crazy than the next. <laughs> so that, like, the idea of who's telling the truth becomes harder and harder. So, like, you know, here you have the the great doctor who, you know, you know, got away with everything in, mm-hmm. in, during the campaign. Right. Meanwhile, Hillary has pneumonia, and we're going to have, you know, four huge, you know, front-page stories about it. Um, and then no one is surprised that, in fact, this is Trump's language. But I wanted to read something to you. What? Because it's not uncommon for a great leader, or I say a powerful leader, to have a doctor say something in their name. Apparently, the personal doctor of... Uh, Kim Jong-un from North Korea uh, attested recently that he has the strength of a hundred men. Wow. So this is, this is not, fabulous. so these great leaders, they, you know, they're, Dr. they're amazing. Dr. Bornstein was his doctor too. <laughs> right, actually, you know, by the way, let me open up the link. Can because... we talk about a, the serious aspect of this? A, you know, not unlike the line, you know, he says, uh, uh, this is the original letter dictated by Trump that Bornstein uh, uh, palmed off as his own. Mr. Trump has had a recent complete medical evaluation that showed only positive results. Yeah. And as Sanjay Gupta, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, made the point repeatedly on CNN last night, positive is a bad thing, yeah. not a good thing. Right, right. And his blood pressure is 110 over 65. I mean, really. <laughs> There's no way. If elected Mr. Trump, I can state unequivocally, as you read, will be the healthiest individual ever elected to the presidency. It is not unlike what Dr. Ronnie Jackson, former exactly. doctor to the current president, uh, told reporters in January when he said Trump's health was excellent. Here's just a little snippet. I told the president that if he had a healthier diet over the last uh, 20 years, he might live to be 200 years old. I don't know. I mean, um, he, uh, he, has incredible, uh, he has incredible genes. You know, while all this is comical and we're all laughing, essentially what we have, I think it's fair to say, even if you're a Trump fan out yeah. there, we have one licensed doctor lying about the health of one of the two finalists for the most powerful job in the Correct. world. Right. We have another doctor who almost became head of the VA, a pretty important agency, yep. who lied to the, I think about it's fair to say, to the yeah, American people about the sitting yeah. president right. of the United yeah. States. And it's one thing to hide your taxes. Uh, does anybody think we're entitled to yes. have an honest report about the health of the person who is leading this? It's I mean, scandalous. I agree with you. It's scandalous. I mean, the, the, this is... Trump perpetuated... I mean, perpetrated such a scam <laughs> on on this issue, on all a lot of issues, but I just want to focus on this issue. The president of the United States 
the American public ought to know their capacity to actually handle the stress and the longevity, you know, four or eight years of what the presidency is, right? And mm-hmm. so, um, uh, and you know, mem- you know, and and it's relevant. There's no there's no right to secrecy in this sense. It's relevant to your capacity to perform, um, and and uh, he. Uh, perpetuated a fraud, if not wrote a fraud, to scam the American public not once but twice. And uh, and two doctors who should know better, uh, or at least one who might have known better, uh, uh, helped him do it. And it's just and we and it's it's so mind boggling in the context of 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 everything going on. This one still remains mind boggling to me. Right. Well, that there are a couple more details I think we should we should mention here. Oh, here she Number goes. one is that this all began when Dr. Bornstein <laughs> revealed that the president was taking a drug to promote yeah. hair growth. But he said apparently it's worked because not only does Dr. Bornstein have all his hair, that flowing right. man we yeah. see, and so does the president as well. Uh, he also says that things deteriorated between him and the president when he got crummy seats for the inauguration. That was very. <gasps> I upsetting. was wondering um, yeah. what triggered this, this recent triggered stuff in May. I mean, this. I mean, this. What triggered yesterday? Right. And in the interview with the New York Times, for which he again asked for donation in his name, Stuff <laughs> University a request that the Times also declined. Dr. Bornstein discussed. Not only the president's medical history, but he bragged about having every phone number for him and all the wives whom he also treated. And he said that Mr. Trump, a rumored germaphobe, changed the paper on the examining table himself after the examinations, apparently before he sat down on that paper and after he got up from the taper. Can I return to another point that Juliet made? And if I'm willing to make this rather insightful point, and if I do, I'd like you to contribute to the University of Pennsylvania (laughs) undergraduate or NYU law school. Right, exactly. Uh, I did not graduate with honors, but I did graduate. You're first in your class. That's what Trump claimed today at the State Department. I was not first. But in all seriousness, for those Trump people listening or shaking their head at Juliet about particularly the Bornstein thing during the campaign, all you have to do is remember back about all the stories about how Hillary, Hillary Clinton was going to die yeah. in a minute. She yeah. She's fallen down. Yeah. She's in horrible right. health. The point yeah. being, she's not healthy enough to make it through four years as president. Right. Well, what's good for the proverbial goose should have been good enough for Trump. Exactly. And if you look at Donald Trump, you know, you haven't heard me say this. My favorite line in all of 2018 on the show is right after Dr. Jackson did that ridiculous evaluation of uh, President Trump. We had Chuck Todd on from Meet yeah. the Press, who's with us every <laughs> Thursday. And Marjorie asked him, how do you explain this thing? And he says, you know, sometimes when you deal with somebody like Trump, you just give up. And you can see Dr. Jackson saying to Trump, you want to be 6'3"? You're 6'3". Right. You yeah. want to be 230 pounds? Okay, you're Give me 230 that pounds. Yeah. But in all seriousness, it is really a, an absolute outrage to be perpetuating a lie to the American people about the candidate and then the president of the United States. So I am hoping that Bornstein at least loses his license or is at least investigated. And Jackson, it's I ridiculous. Jackson He's still in the White House. Had, he lost his, his top position. Know. But, well, you know, and the Jackson thing is actually more egregious than I think you even suggest here. Because I think think what's amazing to me during this administration is the extent to which people are willingly sell their moral compass for professional professional advancement. Oh, maybe so. Um, And so I think Jackson saw a pathway, um, and so he was going to basically, you know, sell his soul. How about Sarah Huckabee Sanders? I know. Everybody is coming, all these journalists coming to her defense. Please. With Michelle Don't Wolf the me. other night. Yeah. And the same woman who is essentially lying Lied to them every day at 3 o'clock. I mean, I'm, just... with, I'm with you. It's pathetic. Okay. I, I, okay. I have to say, I didn't watch it live. I, I uh, watched it later. The, Michelle what, Wolf. She was thing. hilarious. She was 
pretty good. It was, she was great. Okay, so listen, I try to have this show on the high road whenever possible. It's very difficult yeah. with Marjorie oh, here. Oh, but oh, oh, I'll oh, oh, just point out one thing, and this is a good point from David, who points out that physicians lied for JFK and FDR, too. John F. Kennedy was very, very sick with Addison's disease. That's a very good point. FDR was crippled. That's a good point, David. Well, shame on mention it earlier. But as yeah, I started to say, yeah, Marjorie would my prefer the show. That's, I think that's your husband, yes. <laughs> would be on the lower road than I. But apparently you would, too, because I, was just, I just saw a tweet from uh, uh, Juliet Kayyem before Uh-oh. she came on the show. It's rather embarrassing, basically begging. She says, just hoping that Jim and Marjorie allow me to talk about please. the royal wedding. Oh, please. Now, what are the national security implications well, of the royal wedding on May 19th, Juliet Kayyem? Well, I mean... I think CNN needs a security expert to go. <laughs> do you guys? Do you totally. guys? Come on, WGBH. Come on, because you guys do Downton Abbey. Come I'd on, be there in a second. It's, it's a she went to Diana's time. funeral. I could get one of those hats. You like went to Diana's funeral. I did go. To, well, that was the day's newspaper. She just sent you a place. I used to go everywhere back before we lost, lost all our money. It was the greatest. I got to see the Queen I, Elizabeth nothing and like Prince a great Philip funeral, up close and yeah. personal, yeah. and I got to see the two young sons, which is very sad, following their mother's. Um, I know, but look, cast. I'm slightly obsessed with Meghan Markle. I think she's so fantastic. I. I think she's great. I think she's great. A I, I, there's nothing I don't like about her. And uh, so crowd con- so there'll be issues. There'll be lots of dignitaries. <laughs> you know uh, what? Crowd control. They didn't have to send um, her to the royal gynecologist either because she's not going to give birth to the uh, next heir to the throne. Remember poor Diana had to go to the royal reading? gynecologist? What do you she knows read? Everything. They, look, this is what they do. This How is do you, what, they do. what website am I missing? Because I didn't know that. Well, they don't have I, I actually even knew this. No, she's, she's a divorcee. So yeah. they don't ha- there's no point in sending her to the royal gynecologist because she's already already had a husband. Right. That, you're supposed to be virginal. Didn't you I know, know that? I you did. That's why the... we like her. That's why we like That's her. That's right. Plus, Suits is a very, very good show. Suits is um, a very good show. She's very sexy. Divorcee. Yeah. I've said we that like ten her. times. I think, uh, I th- I will find the national security implications Absolutely. of this, and then I can go. And as I always like to say, um, get to the bottom of who Harry's father is. That's the big question. By oh the way, my God, can you I guys, do we a... are down. The I like this. Can I'm I do so a programming announcement, if you don't mind? You're sending We're doing a three-part series starting next week with the royal gynecologist. <laughs> He'll be with us, or she'll be with us, whoever she is, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so I hope you'll I just want, tune I want to know how I missed that little tidbit, because okay, I am fine. slightly obsessed with this royal yeah, wedding. Yeah, there's okay. royal I love everything. There's the royal her. makeup artist. It's all artist. silliness, and I'm going to get all these tweets, like, Juliet, that's so silly, with everything going wrong in yep. the world, and blah, 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 blah. Trust me, I know everything is going wrong in the world, and just yeah. give, me, give me my little Megan. Do you know give about me the Megan. lemon elderflower cake? We yes, discussed I that yesterday. Yes, yeah. Okay, we're done. Julia Kime, it's great to see you. Okay, we'll watch ahead. you on CNN tonight, tonight or tomorrow. You on tonight? I, uh, yeah, but everything changes. Okay, but it's see seven. you tonight. Yeah. Okay, Juliet Kime, thank you very much as always for coming in. Juliet Kime joins us every week. She is the uh, national exactly. security expert, the joint yeah, professor at Harvard's Kennedy Wherever School, she is. CEO of Zemcar, contributor to uh, CNN, where you can see her every night. Thank you very much for coming in, uh, Juliet. Up next. Actor, singer, writer, David Duchovny's latest novel is Miss Subways, which is really terrific. He's going to be at a book signing event this afternoon at 4 o'clock at the Harvard Business School. We're going to talk to him right now on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. And we are broadcasting live from the Boston Public Library.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Mardrigan. We are live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. We're joined by actor, singer, best-selling author David Duchovny. His latest novel is Miss Subways, a reimagining of an Irish myth set in modern-day New York City. And yes, the subway system is central to the story. It's getting great reviews. Some critics are characterizing it as a postmodern fairy tale but mystical might be a more apt adjective because how can anything be postmodern now that the former host of Celebrity Apprentice is president of the U.S.? David Duchovny will be at a book signing event this afternoon at 4 o'clock at the Harvard Bookstore. To get tickets, you go to harvard.com. David, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for being here. Nice to meet you, too. I guess the, the, the dumbest period naming uh, would be modern. <laughs> then you go post, what, do you go post-postmodern after that? That's a very fun point. That is point. an excellent the, actually, point. The only worst name of a period was contemporary, because how can you be post-contemporary? <laughs> That's another very You'd have to point. go to the future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like, like well, what's... There was contemporary fiction about 20 years ago. Yes. Now that's post-postmodern. I got it. Okay. Could you repeat you see, any of that? You or see, are we he went to Princeton and Yale. I know. I read. See, so that's, 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 I like to that's think I'm thing. starting the pre-post-contemporary. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're the well, man for it. Let me tell you I what know, you are too. doing, and yeah. we'll get to this in a second. Uh, it, you've allowed my co-host here, Mr. Browdy, to live, relive vicariously his years on the New York City subway, which <laughs> you'll get to totally in true. a I don't, second. I don't know why you'd want to do that. Well, there's some, this, I'll tell you why you'd want to do it, actually. <laughs> we'll get right. to that in a second. But just tell people, what's, what's the basic premise of Miss Subways? Well, I guess the, the idea that stayed with me was uh, when I was a, a graduate student, I saw a, a Yates, W.B. Yates verse play called The Only Jealousy of Emer. Uh, which which uh, stars Cuculain, the mythical Irish king, and his wife, the queen Emer, and a, an Irish demon, a seed, S-I-D-H-E, comes to Emer, and offers her this wager and says, "Your husband, the king, is Cuculain, is about to die in battle, but you can save him." She says, "How?" And he says, "You have to renounce your love for him. He, when he wakes up from this dream of of almost dying, he will not know you. He will not know that you have children together." He will never know you, and you will never know him. And that always struck me as a very romantic notion. <laughs> Not so romantic, but like a dark, darkly, <laughs> yeah. darkly romantic. And I, I, I modernize it into a contemporary time, uh, the present day, and uh, just try to tell that fairy tale or that myth within the, the context of New York and the subway system. Can we, I was just going to say, can we go from big picture to small picture? Maybe I'm overly upset. I lived in New York for 15 years a long time ago. Yeah. You captured the subway experience, in my estimation, mm-hmm. as precisely as anybody I've ever read. How big a part of your life as a kid was this subway? Oh, it was. I mean, I, I grew up on 11th Street and 2nd Avenue, and I went to high school on 77th and Broadway, so I took the subway at least twice a day. And, um, you know, it's just in my mind. I haven't taken it a lot recently, and it's, it's a lot nicer now. When I was a kid, it wasn't, it wasn't so nice. But Did you ever go in the subway? I mean, what Marjorie was going to describe to embarrass me is in hot summer days in New York City, <laughs> yeah. when I was in law school, if you couldn't get a date, you went on the subway. And that was essentially where you had your sort of... Your just where you tried to meet people? Exactly. Well, it's, or more than meet people is usually what went on in the oh, subway. Oh, really? So you never had that yeah. experience? No. No. He was pressing up against people no, on the oh, subway. Everybody was no, really doing. I don't want to do a Me Too yeah, which thing. Is, which everybody is really was pressing up against everybody. Everybody was pressing up everybody. Oh, I see. I see. But, Frotage, they call yeah. it. I guess I think that is. <laughs> but this is a great. Of course, the French a, have a name for it. What is that? This frotage. Is a, oh, frotage. That's right. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're, a fra- mind, you're a frotteur. Do you mind if I read a, a sentence from your subway description? Do I mind? Yeah. This no. is. Uh, this is. This is great. Here in the simulated captivity of a subway car, it seemed like the male imperative to gaze unapologetically at the female was a creepy game of chicken. The man spreading, lip-lipping, eye, whatever, 
exhausting. And these are men who would never act this way up in the disinfecting light of the street, but down in the subway, these same males reverted to this kind of primal kind of thing. You captured it, which is really great. It it reminds me a little bit, I'm going to really flatter you now, of the opening of Rabbit Run when John Updike talks about playing basketball. Oh, wow. Yeah, the same kind of thing of capturing a certain kind of thing. You really captured the subways there. Um, uh, Updike was into Frotage, too. He was into Frotage. (laughs) He was into Frotage. Yeah. Seems like it. Okay. Um, So um, tell us a little bit more about 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 the book, though. So elaborate a little bit before we move on to other things. Tell us more about it. Well, I kind of uh, used this wager that I, I spoke of, the one uh, from the Yates play, to kind of set up an idea of parallel lives depending on the woman's um, response to the wager. So she says yes, she says no, whatever. What happens after you wake up a different person from the, who you were before the wager? So there's like three different iterations of her life in the book. I also wanted to kind of emphasize the female point of view from the original you know, the mythological point of view, which is heavily on, on Kukulin, on the male. And this is really a story about a woman. In the beginning, when we meet her, she's kind of her boyfriend's assistant. She's his research assistant. She, but she has uh, many ideas of her own. He's trying to write a book that's going to make him famous. And once she wakes up alone, this, the middle part of the book, which is the longest part, is really of, of a woman seizing control of her own narrative and not being an assistant or not being second to the man. So that's kind of the retelling in favor of the queen as opposed to the king. We're talking to David Duke Coveney, who you know for a lot of reasons. Most recently, his brand new novel is Miss Subways, which is getting great reviews. Then I read, speaking of novels, that Bucky Effing Dent, which I think you're second, yeah. is about to be made into a movie? Yeah, I, I hope so. I'm, I'm trying to cast it right now. I want to shoot in August in New York, and a couple. we'll have to shoot a couple days up here as well. And, and what's the name? Of, is it Ted? Is that the name of the guy? Yeah, Ted. And, and Ted. He, didn't he have, like, was his pet like a mechanical fish? Mechanical or? fish, yeah. So what was the inspiration for... for the mechanical uh, fish? I don't know if people... No, no, no. <laughs> I don't know if you have a Boston connection. I don't know if people know that you have a Boston. What is that? Uh, my father moved to Boston when I was in high school and he uh, worked at Brandeis. So he, he lived up here for over a decade, I think. So do you feel a connection? And by the way, Maureen Dowd's piece on you, which was, yeah. I think, 300,000 words <laughs> this uh, past weekend, she yeah. didn't get into the... Are you a Red Sox guy, or what are you? What's no, your I'm a Yankee. I'm you, a Yankee are, you are a Yankee yeah. guy. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. But, but, you know, Buck Effing Dent, I think, gives me some cred with, some, with the Sox fans. It I, truly I does. So we're talking to David in the company. He's, he, everybody knows him from the X-Files, from Californification, from Sex and the City, great role you had there a long time ago. From we all know that 2014 was juicing. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you know... I didn't know until I read it, reading about you in preparation for this that you, as I said before, you went to Princeton, you got a master's degree in, in, in uh, English at Yale University. Yeah. So were you going to be a, a John Optic yourself? I mean, is that how you, did well, you ever think I, about I, this? I, I, was this? In a, I was in a PhD program, so I was going to get the PhD, and then I, 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 I imagine I was going to try and get tenure somewhere and teach, and then use the, the generous uh, vacation, summer vacation time to, to write. Yeah. So I thought I'd be some kind of uh, novel writing or poetry writing uh, professor of English literature somewhere. So the fact that you've gone into novels is really not that no, surprising. No, no, I, I, I would have uh, identified myself as a writer, you know, at those forms you fill out when you're in high school. What are you going to be, lawyer, doctor, whatever. So what happened? How did, how did you make the segue into acting? It was really through writing. I was at graduate school. I was at Yale, and um, I just thought uh, writing was so lonely, um, and uh, I thought, well, you know, I guess playwrights are a little less lonely. At least they get to go to the play, and, and they get to watch people 
you know, they get to hang out with people. So I said, oh, maybe I'll write a play. And there's all these great classes in the Yale Drama School. They, they allowed me to kind of audit them. And then I met the, the classes at the Yale Drama School, and there are so many productions going on around there. They always need bodies to fill in the small roles. So they said, hey, you know, why don't you play this dude in this little play? And I, that's how I kind of started. And I thought as a playwright, I should probably learn something about acting. I should probably learn what it's like to speak somebody else's dialogue. And I, I, I approached it as an actor from the very beginning. Was the Twin Peaks thing your first deal? No. Special agent Denise Bryan? No, but it was early. Parts ever? Yeah, it was early. And, and in fact, um, I have a story about that that, that involves my father because he, he, he underwent uh, heart surgery right around that time. And he was up here. And um, it was airing right when uh, my dad was recovering. Mm. He'd had the surgery. And he had the tubes down his throat. He was unconscious. And I went to see him, and there was a yellow pad, a legal pad by his bed uh, where he was writing, you know, his, his wishes or whatever, you know, like to tell, because he had the tube down so he couldn't speak. And I saw that uh, he had written, uh, I'm thirsty, my feet are cold, my son plays a transvestite on television. <laughs> You know, I'm sure you're sick of this, but this line... Because he wanted them to turn the TV on. And they were, they were, I'm sure they were like, oh, who has been giving him the morphine? Yeah, exactly. If I play the classic line from Twin Peaks, you're going to say, I'm so sick of hearing this, I can't stand this anymore. Is it, I still pull my Oh, yes, it is. Here, is. here is one it's of the great, great lines from the last decade. This in the, from Twin Peaks. Agent Denise uh, Bryson, that is, of course, David Duchovny, speaks with the great agent Dale Cooper. First, you'll hear Kyle McLaughlin, and then you'll hear uh, David. Here it is. Denise. Hi, Coop. Denise, I would assume you're no longer interested in girls. Coop, I may be wearing a dress, but I still pull my panties on one leg at a time, if you know what I mean. Not really. Not really. <laughs> Not well, really. David's laughing at that, too, so I feel a little better. Can we go back to your book for one second here? Uh, uh, I want to read, since Marjorie read. Where is well, Fog... Can I jump in? With yes, you right. the, the last... A run of Twin Peaks, there was a great line in the scene that I in did. The, in the reincarnation yeah, recently? Where David Lynch says to me in his character that, you know, he told the other guys at the Bureau to accept me. He said, they, they bet those clown, those clown something or others better fix their hearts or die. Mm. You know, oh, that's a good one. It was a great line. So going back to uh, 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 Miss Subways for a second, the latest novel by David Duchovny, whereas five years ago, Khan's diligent years-long work might have been seen as predicting and prefiguring a hybrid monstrosity like the current president. In the actual age of Trump, Khan's warnings felt belated, coded, impotent. Marjorie, my coworker here, suffers from Trump derangement I do. syndrome. I do. I'm <laughs> do guilty you, as do charged. You? TDS. Do you yeah. suffer from it? Uh, no, no, because I'm, there is no derangement. I'm very, I see it very clearly. And I'm, what do you see? Oh, it's the worst thing that could happen. It's, How do you explain it? Oh, I, I don't know if we need to explain it. We just need to get rid of it. You mm. know, I think we can talk about the explanations or, you know, whatever. He's there. He's, he's a, a, a cancer on the country. He has to be removed. Did you ever see him or meet him in, being in all I that time in New York? I waved at him once. Yeah, Where you waved this? at him? I was backstage at like you know one of those morning shows. Oh, he was there. Yeah. Um, you know, you, there's another great line that, that you probably been asked about a million times, but I thought it was a great line too about living in New York City. That so much of New York is involved in looking away. Tell people what you meant by that. There's so much stimulus. Uh, there's so much uh, sadness. There's there's so much there's so much poverty. There's so much pain. Um, 
you know, to walk down the street if you were to open yourself to it uh, in any city, I would say in any city, but New York especially. Uh, you have to look away or else you would explode, I think, in, in, in either empathy or lack of empathy and blame yourself. Well, you know, it's very interesting because you don't see quite as much, uh, you, you, you don't get hit up for money quite as much in Boston as you do in New York, which I visit all the time because a couple of my kids are down there. So it's almost like you have to get hard bitten in yeah. New York City because yeah. you can't be handing out dollars all day long. Yeah, well, that's, that's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. So is that a problem? I mean, it's, 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 it's a social problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a life problem. It's a, it's a, you know, it's, life is hard, so... You, you have to make a choice uh, sometimes of sur your own survival of self over, over reaching out to, to help someone else. We We're talk talking to David Duchovny. David, can we talk X-Files for you second talking sure. about X-Files or is no. that okay with you? No, no, I'm, I'm a fan. I, my, my, I worried for you, even mm. though you may not have worried for yourself, <laughs> that a la John Hamm and Mad Men, even though he's a great comic, I would yeah. argue beyond that, a la Gandolfini and Sopranos, yeah. that you were Mulder forever and could never yeah. be. And obviously you've proven that's not true. Right. Did that not worry you through all these? I know you left it, for a while. It, it, did, it did for a while. I think it did towards the end of the first run. Uh, I was just itching to go out and prove myself in, in other things. So uh, it was something that was, it was brought up uh, to me from time to time, uh, but, you know, on the inside, I never really had that, that thought because I just didn't think it was true. I mean, I thought, well, maybe it'll happen, but that doesn't mean it was true. You know, I just, I knew that I could do other things. I knew that I wanted to do other things, so, uh, you know, I, I would just think, well, just wait. Well, let's, just, let's just wait, and then we'll have that discussion. You know, luckily for me, I was going to ask you, but thankfully, I was going to say, is there any Mulder in you? And then I watched an interview with you this morning in which you said, essentially, if I'm asked one more time that stupid <laughs> question if about whether or not there's any Mulder in me, so I'm not going to ask no, you. No, no, it's, it's not the Mulder in me. You didn't put it quite that way, but you put it, it was fairly close. I mean, obviously, you know, you look the way you look. So it's, you're going to look. I look like Mulder. I look a lot like Mulder. You look. You do look yeah. a lot. It's yeah, stunning. we noticed that. We are exactly in a postmodern kind of way. way. I yeah. Think, yeah, I look like I look like an old Mulder. Moldy. We wouldn't know. I'm only kidding. We don't want to say anything yeah. like that. So, what do you make I'll of all that's happening with television? I mean, it, you know, when the X Files began, or, or even when Sex and the City was on, it was a whole different thing. We tuned in. There were certain stations you could watch HBO, but now it's like. Netflix, Amazon, yeah. every, wh everything. Yeah. Is this a good thing if for the people that work in the industry? Oh, yeah. I think, it, I think it's definitely it's, it's the heyday of, of, of uh, content. You know, there's so many vendors. There's so many ways to consume content. There's not enough content. Now, it's going to be hard to get a consensus. It's going to be hard to have a hit the way you used to have a hit because there's, it's just too scattered. It's, it's too attenuated. Isn't it hard to make money? It's it's oh sure it'll be hard to make money. Yeah, because it's not you're not Well, it won't be hard to make money. It'll be hard to make a lot of money. I mean, I I think in the in the end it's probably good that that a lot of people will be making decent livings. Yeah. But it'll be hard to make that huge score harder. Where do you you know, I can't believe you haven't asked this. Every time we have a writer on who Marjorie admires, and I know from what she told me about your book this morning that she admires your writing, she always asks, as a writer herself, and somebody who wants to write a book but has written columns and things for the oh, Globe, I never write, the I Herald. I can never write fiction. When you, 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 do this, I mean, you don't know that. You have, by the way, I am probably, I, I hope you don't take this, I actually own 
hell or high water. So to tell you, and I'm probably maybe the only person listening who actually owns it. Do you why, think? Why not? I think people have bought that. I love that CD. It was yeah. given to me, and if I love yeah. the thing, I love that song. But it, Marjorie would ask, which I can't believe she hasn't. When do you do this? When do you do Miss Subways? <clears throat> when do you do Bucky effing Dent? When do you do this stuff? And how? How do you? Yeah, integrate you do it in the morning. Life? Do you do it at night? Yes, do you carry yes, I do it in the morning. In the morning, I, first thing. I'm I'm not gonna write anything afternoon. Yeah, it's really hard to write at night. Yeah, I I like to get up before anybody else is up, have a cup of coffee, and if I feel like I'm writing when everybody's still asleep, I feel like I'm getting away with something. Like like I'm working when nobody else is working, I'm getting ahead. Yeah. And I just have good, I think I have good mental energy in the morning, way better than in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah, I know, that's a problem. And when I write, if, I, if I'm writing a novel, uh, I, when I sit down to write it, I don't necessarily know everywhere I'm gonna go in the novel. I, I don't have it completely plotted out. I like to know maybe 20, 30 pages ahead and maybe the end, but other than that, I like to get caught up in it. So you it. don't do an outline? I do, a, I do a very vague outline, but it changes so drastically in the writing. So do you have a rule? You have to write a certain number of words or work no. for a certain number of hours? No, just when I just can't do it anymore. I'll just, I, it, it, I want to sit there for some hours, for sure. I won't just get up after 20 minutes if I'm not doing anything, but... Uh, sometimes I'll just write fast and a lot, and it'll be tiring. It'll feel like I've been there for hours, and that'll be enough. So you're very disciplined. I'm sporadically disciplined. Okay. We're, we're talking, talking to, to David. David the book is Miss Subways. I want to ask something else about the industry, too. That um, We're now in like the post uh, Me Too, Weinstein, all the people that got in trouble in, the, in, in, in Hollywood. What do you, is this going to make a change in, in I mean, is this going to matter? Is this going to change the way business has been done for years and years and years in the movie, TV business, do you think? I, I think ultimately it will, and it, and it should. Um, I think it's not just it's not just Hollywood. It's it's the way business is done everywhere. So, I think this has been a necessary correction, and uh, we're still in the midst of it. You know, we don't know where the you know the pendulum is swinging. We don't know where the middle is. We have a vision of it, and it feels like a meritocracy where everybody gets paid the same for the same job that they do. So, hopefully, we can get there. Quentin Tarantino, I thought, uh, really tellingly said, and I'll paraphrase, but I think this is right, I knew enough to have done more right after the Weinstein thing broke. Sure. With somebody like you who's been in this industry, well, did, have you known enough to have done more? Uh, not, not in that case. I, I, you know. I don't mean Weinstein. Yeah. I mean in general. No? I, I honestly don't think so. Um, I don't want to say I'm a, you know, I'm a saint, but... I can't think of a I can't think of a uh, an example offhand. I'll get back to you if I do. Did you see Michelle Wolf <laughs> the other night? I did. I loved What'd her. What did you think of her? Fantastic. You did think so? Fantastic. What do you think of people who are defending the people she criticized, I particularly think, reporters? I think, I think they're weak, and I think that's why Trump wins because because the one thing he does have is stamina and uh, no shame and. Uh, these people, it's first of all, it's First Amendment. Second of all, she's telling the truth. Third of all, she's funny. She is funny. Fourth of all, she wasn't making fun of the way the woman looks. She was making fun of her makeup. And I can go on and on. It's, 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 uh, it's horrifying to me when, when I think those are my brothers and sisters who are folding so quickly. <laughs> Don't do it. We're talking to David Duchovny. The book is Miss Subways. You know, um, I, this is something else I learned about you. A friend of uh, Gary Shandling. There's been a great uh, uh, documentary about his career. Speaking of great stuff on television, tell us a little bit about him and your friendship. He's just a prince of man. Um, uh, just my great friend. Uh, I miss him uh, daily. He was. Uh, 
extremely uh, thoughtful and, and sensitive and, uh, you know, obviously funny. Uh, a comic genius, I would say, he had a, an angle on perception and on life that was uh, unique and it tickled my funny bone completely. I mean, it, this guy made me laugh more than anyone I've ever known. As you can tell, sitting here, I'm not a very easy laugh. So, so it was. Uh, I, I miss him. I miss his sage advice. So, what's Before your favorite? You what's your oh. favorite stuff on TV now? What are some of your favorites? I don't. I don't. Not really watching that much. I did catch some of Atlanta recently. And yeah. I, I thought it was great. I, so I was having some dental work done, and now they. <laughs> They let you. They let you watch TV. You now. Yeah, <laughs> at least in the fancy New York dentist I that I go you to. You don't go to Doctor Bornstein, but fancy your physicals, do you? Because you look good. Well, I I would like to go to Doctor Bornstein, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I feel like I'm six four, <laughs> and I've never gotten anybody to corroborate that. And I'm pretty damn sure that I am. I think he's just the man for you, my friend. Okay. David Duchovny, it's great to meet you. We love your book. Yeah, Thanks congratulations. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, this is beautifully done, and we m very much appreciate your coming in. And I'll get this straight in the way going out. We've been talking to actor, singer, writer, band member, all that kind of stuff. David Duchovny's latest novel is Miss Subways. He's going to be at a book signing event this afternoon, 4 o'clock, at the Harvard Bookstore. If you want to get tickets, go to harvard.com. David, thank you very much for Thanks coming. For Congratulations you, for again. Being here. My pleasure. Coming thank up, you. we're going to talk to Andy Anatko. We're going to talk to him about all, what's going on with Apple, what's going on with Facebook, all the latest in tech. Plus, I'm really interested in finding about this new cheap iPad. Andy Anatko, our tech guy, is next. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, and we are broadcasting live from the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. He's Jim Browdy. And she's Marjorie Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston. Online at WGBHnews.org. Boston's local NPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan, live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Joining us to go over the latest headlines at the intersection of tech, policy, and culture is Andy Anatko. And he's a tech writer and blogger. You can find his work at anatko.com. That's I-H-N-A-T-K-O.com. And you can follow him at Anatko. Good to see you, Andy. How are you? Good to be back. I'm doing moderately well. Well, thank you. Well, that's good. Well, let's, we'll start with what Jim Brown is obsessed with. Apparently, he sent his DNA out all over America. <laughs> I did not. .com, whatever. And the, it didn't turn out well for the Golden State Killer. And Jim is concerned that uh, someone may be 
you know, catching on to his DNA and something bad's going to happen. Yeah, that's legitimate. Um, I used to be kind of worried about people on Facebook facing photos of, you know, of group photos at parties, and I didn't want to be tagged in Facebook when I'm tagged in Facebook. But it's even worse here because people who just say, oh, wouldn't it be fun just to see what my DNA is like? If you have opted out of that, that's fine. But your sister, well, congratulations. Now the DNA company has your data. They're, I've read their uh, terms of use, and you basically have no privacy. They can essentially resell th their data to whoever they want. As you, uh, of course, check every user, user policy individually. But the ones that I've said, that I've taken a look at, does, haven't really taken privacy seriously. I want to be clear about this thing. The, the site where they did, the investigators did a match from crimes, with crime scene DNA to relatives of D'Angelo and then ultimately got the D'Angelo was a public access database where my understanding is that people who may go to a commercial private site like uh, 23andMe or Ancestry.com upload their data. Correct me if I'm wrong because maybe I heard wrong. Well, once you upload your data there, it is fair game under state and federal law, even though I wish it weren't. Uh, if you don't do anything with your data other than pay the $99 or whatever it is, the 23andMe or Ancestry.com, is that not theoretically inaccessible to investigators without, at least what they've been saying, without a subpoena or a warrant or something like that? Am I right about that or no? Uh, it, again, it, you have to read the terms of use. Uh, the terms of use can be as broad as saying uh, we dispose of all this information after we give it to you because we're just interested in giving you, selling you information. There are some terms of use that simply say we now have this information and if law enforcement asks for it, we'll, we'll happily give it to them because we don't have the budget to fight that sort of stuff and neither do we have the interest. And some of them can even say, well, if, if you're about to take a high-profile job with a high-profile company and they want to know, does this, is this person going to make it to age 70? Let's just buy his DNA and see if there are any markers for anything we might be interested in. Again, if you, sign, if you agree to a terms of service, they could go with that as well. You know, one of the things that worried me prior to doing a little television segment on this last night was beyond, you know, most of us are not going to be serial murderers and rapists, <laughs> so, I mean, or commit horrible crimes, but most of us are going to have a job, most of us need health insurance. There's apparently a federal law, which I was unaware of, uh, stunningly, not stunningly that I was unaware of, stunningly that there's a law that precludes uh, employers and health insurers from using genetic data against you in terms of your employment or your access to, to health care. But with that exception, assuming I'm right in what I just said, in almost all these situations, the law is way behind yes. the technology. So what are some of the other worries that people like you have, privacy types, and I know you are, and I like to think I am, and I know Marjorie is too, what worries do you have about DNA where the law has not caught up in terms of protecting us from potential exposure. It, it gets down to this broad topic that thankfully we keep talking about over and over again because it needs to, some light shed on it. The idea that information about you is a commodity that can be acquired for next to nothing by these companies and then just sold and monetized in a hundred different ways. Cambridge Analytica, essentially. Exactly. It, I, it just makes... A, I think that in principle, it's a bad idea that if any one of my sisters, again, just as a lark, if they got a, uh, as a lark, or if they got this as a Christmas present, Amazon had a go really good gold box deal for dirt, dirt cheap when these services uh, was giving these things away. And of course, you would gift things to other people. And as soon as I saw that pop up in December, I'd say, okay, everybody... <laughs> 
cool it for just a second. If you want to do this, just read. Here's the, here's the link to everything you're going to be giving away for this. And the fact that I don't have rights to privacy to my DNA because I can decide not to do this, but again, I can't stop relatives of mine from doing it. And there is a, a credible argument to be made that when you can close out a, a case that's 30 years old, emphatically and decisively, that's wonderful. But in principle, I don't like the idea that uh, law enforcement or anybody else could simply cast like a random net to say, yeah. show me somebody who kind of matches this DNA because if that's not the... We don't think we're going to get the killer that way, but we know that's someone we should talk to about their weird cousin. We're talking to Andy Anatko. Andy, speaking of Cambridge Analytica, uh, uh, there was a major pronouncement at an event the other day by uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and at least my takeaway is that he was clearly telling us that we're going to be bigger, meaning we being Facebook. I'm not convinced that, that they're going to be better. Uh, what are they doing and what's credible, at least what do they say they're doing, vis-a-vis -vis the privacy concerns that, uh, that uh, Zuckerberg copped to after this Cambridge uh, Analytica thing? What are they doing? Well, this is the season when CEOs have big developer conferences and they get to stand and f spend an hour talking about the entire company for, and for a year. So Facebook had their developer conference yesterday. He announced, oh, a bunch yesterday. Of, okay. and so announced a bunch of things. The only tangible stuff he talked about in terms of privacy that went beyond PR saying we have, we're very, very serious now. We understand mm -hmm. where the holes are. We're working to patch them up. The only thing that he, that he said that was tangible was they're adding a, 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 cl a clear history button so that not only can you see, just as you can on Google and on other services, what they know about you, but they can, you can also push a button and say, please forget all about this. So that includes not just stuff that you've done through Facebook and Facebook apps, but anytime you've visited a website that has like a, a blog post and has a Facebook like button, well, that's a way that Facebook tracks where you are and what you're doing. So That's a pretty big deal if that's real. Is it not, or am I but overreacting? Is that, but is that any more real than when you do that in your own computer, when you clear the history in your own computer? No, that's uh, doing it on your own computer is next to, n it's not worthless, it's a good gesture, but as soon as you uh, go on the internet, those cookies start piling up and those trackers start piling up again. It is a big deal to be able to, if Facebook is for real about this, to say That's that a big deal. you lose uh, you lose the information that you've collected about me. Uh, Google is very very good in that they're granular, because you can say, look, I don't. You know, when I was at the when I was going to the, uh, looking for party uh, party store stuff, I was just looking for stuff for my sister's bachelorette party. I'm not interested in that sort of novelty stuff in general. Please omit this this one piece of thing. Facebook is going to be a little bit more emphatic about that because at this point, they uh, one of their biggest jobs now is to avoid being regulated by the government. Okay. Well, even though he said he was open, whatever that means, it may have been a rhetorical flourish, to some regulation. But at the same time, I think it was this development thing yesterday you talked about. He talks about them expanding into some dating thing. Yeah. Who is dumb enough <laughs> to think that that uh, even more intimate data, I assume, if you want to use it, is going to be protected. I assume he said it would be protected, correct? Yeah, it's partitioned off from your main Facebook profile. You essentially think of it as a regular, a separate dating service that is part of Facebook that can also be informed by your likes and dislikes. So, it'll so in addition to the stuff that you would normally give a dating site, it will also match up, well, here's what we know about Andy based on uh, our Already. Facebook, and here's what we know about J Juliet based on her Facebook, so we think these people are compatible. And but whatever you added, I want to be clear, whatever you added, add to this 
piece of the Facebook operation theoretically is segregated and different rules will apply in terms of the sharing of the information? It's segregated from your Facebook followers, right. Facebook fans. It's not segregated from Facebook in general. So you're still telling people that you like warm butterscotch cookies, but your mom's not going to know about that. But do they say they won't share that information or the different rules will apply? We so have yet to know. Okay. But there's, you know there's, it I hasn't wonder... been rolled out yet. There'll be another terms of service, I'm sure about it. But, but I wonder, so there's these other dating sites already existence, you know, Match.com or GoCupid or whatever it is, OkCupid. Or um, Meet a Farmer. Or actually, a, there a is farmer. one for, uh, there is like yeah, a Meet a Farmer That's right, Meet thing. a Farmer. Farmersonly.com. Farmers Thank you, Tori. <laughs> Obviously, someone so, has been on it, hasn't she? Um, so th- those sites, I would assume, are pretty uh, uh, vulnerable. Yeah, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, their stock prices of ones that are publicly traded took a bit of a hit yesterday because as much as Facebook is in the news and as much as scrutiny as they're getting from its users and from the government, profits they they announced this week are way, way up. Uh, I think they had a 63% increase in profits based on 49% of increased revenue uh, from this year to last. Well, I saw their new ads last night on TV. I forget which station I I was was watching. Brilliant. 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 And by the way, basically admitting what uh, their sins, their mistakes. but saying, let's return. Have you not seen yeah. it yet? Let's return to the beautiful yeah, things that Facebook does. Together. And I have to say, I feel sappy, but I, I thought it was really a yeah. beautiful thing. Well, ad. I think it's totally full of baloney. So I do I. I well, feel close to the, anybody, but uh, lots of people disagree with me, and they just absolutely love Facebook, and they love posting everybody's birthdays and baby pictures and all that kind of stuff. Can I so, do a caution to people? What? I just went on farmersonly.com, <laughs> and I just got emailed an offer for 10 bales of hay. <laughs> so for those who think that that's, that's gonna that chase you're you. protected, that's chase exactly. you for a yeah, why only you farmers? Can't get away. Why not, you know, physicians, attorneys? I'm sure they're out there. There's, there's an By NRA the way, dating, dating site. There's a who? There's an NRA dating site I've heard about. I, I think yeah. that's true. By the way, via Associated Press, on an unrelated note, but I'm sure it will matter to you, the two guys who were arrested at the Starbucks in Philadelphia, according to the Associated Press, settled with the city for a symbolic $1 each and a promise from officials to set up a $200,000 program for young entrepreneurs. That's according to the Associated Press. I wonder if they're going to settle with Starbucks anytime soon. I don't know. So can we go okay. from one? Go yes, I, I'm very excited about uh, this. Um, if, we can, if we can switch to it now. I'm really dying to know about this new Apple iPad that is pretty cheap, $329. Yeah. Um, and you think it's terrific. I, I've got it in front of me right, in front of me right now. Oh. I'm in the middle of testing it. Oh, can uh, I hold it? <laughs> please, oh. hold, hold the new iPad. Oh. <laughs> What's it feel like? It's How do you feel? Very it's light. It's super light. Very well, light. Uh, I took it with me on a five-day business trip to New York uh, last week. That was my only computer. I had this and my phone, and that was and? it. Flying colors. I was Why are you raving? I, we saw your note you, that you're raving about. Well, I, I, I love nice. it because it's in my hand. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay, there you go. Okay, so why are you raving about this thing? Because for $329, you're getting one hell of a nice computer. Um, yes, you would have to add a keyboard to do the mm-hmm. stuff that I do with it, which is writing thousands and thousands of words. But it was able to keep up with my email, keep up with my writing. I was editing photos on it. I was editing video on it. Uh, unlike the model that they in- introduced at this price point last year, this has uh, a really modern p- processor, so at no point does it feel slow. It also works with the Apple Pencil. So when I was in uh, the David Bowie exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum of Art, oh, oh my oh. God, such a good exhibit! They, they don't let you. They don't let you take pictures, but I had the Apple Pencil, so I had to take the. I had to make a drawing of the big suit with the big wide pants in it. Oh gosh! You, you would know the one if you're a Bowie fan. But, yeah. Uh, and and the Apple Pencil was keeping up one. 100%. 
So, so by the you, way, do you know who wears Bowie pants, those wide pants? Kim Jong-un. I'm serious. <laughs> he does? If you look at photographs of Kim, he wears the, essentially the same He, he fills that. them out a lot more than Bowie did. He does, indeed. But let me ask you something, Andy Nako. If you bought an iPad, as many of us did years ago, I think it was 600 bucks when I bought That's it. That's what yep. I paid. Um, uh, and it still seems to be working okay. What is the advantage of trading in my old iPad for a this one? Uh, number one, it'll be lighter, uh, thinner, which is nicer for this machine. Mm -hmm. It'll last a lot longer on battery. Uh, also, again, modern CPU. This is the same CPU that's in, I think, the iPhone 7, which means that when Apple continues to come out with new versions of the operating system and uh, applications from third parties that are designed for modern machines, this will keep up just fine. Okay. And also, your old iPad doesn't have support for Apple Pencil, which is no. one of the nicest $99 you can spend for yourself. You've <laughs> I, I was not inter I had not done been to art studios and done live drawing since I was in college, but now now, like I know a studio, and I keep going with there with my iPad Pro, the big one, uh, and just using that pencil is so much fun with the apps that are, that you can get for it. Andy Anako, can we stay on Apple for a second to show my uh, thorough misunderstanding of the retail market? Uh, in addition to this good news, according to you, on this iPad, it's cheap and powerful. I thought that Apple was taking a total bath on the new phone. Is it the 10? iPhone 10. And it's a thousand bucks or thereabouts. Starts at a thousand. And I read that I don't know if it's Cook or whoever made the pronouncement. They had one of the most successful revenue. Is that despite the phone or? in part because of the phone? Is it iTunes? What, what, what's going on? Uh, they said that, uh, Tim Cook said that the iPhone 10 was the best-selling phone they've had yet. Best-selling phone? And that d despite being a thousand bucks, it was the, in, it was the iPhone leading, it was the leading selling iPhone for the first two quarters, at least. Oh. There was a lot of speculation that th uh, there was going to be some bad, or excuse me, not enthusiastic news about it because uh, no fewer than four companies that are supplying parts for it they have to make their own disclosures because of their own uh, stockholders. And like the company that uh, supplies the, like, the 3D sensor for the face scan had to say that our, one of our biggest clients reduced their orders for the, for the so coming quarters. So how does that jive with what Cook is saying about the sales of the phone? He was saying that, uh, realize that Tim Cook came up in Apple as the master of, uh, of, <laughs> of, of the pipeline. He, they buy things not necessarily because they need them for something they're doing right now, but because these parts are cheap right now and they know they're going to need them later. He didn't get into detail in the uh, call yesterday, but uh, his words were indicating that it, was, it wasn't due to demand so much as we, bought what we, we acquired what we needed for, we're going to need for the rest of the year, which means that we don't have to buy as much as we might have needed last quarter or the quarter before that. That's the voice of Andy Anako, our Ted guy. Can we go to another totally aggravating thought? Oh, sure. For consumers, no, go ahead. It's our next thing on our list. Oh, our next thing on the list. Oh, are we talking about the merger, the T-Mobile the no. and the AT&T or well, the Oculus the, Go? Or what are we talking about? It's about the Department of Justice oh, investigation at AT&T. The investigation, yeah. And Verizon. We skipped Oculus Go. I don't know if I'll have time for that. Well, we can get back to that in a second. My okay, apologies. Yeah, the, go ahead. the antitrust investigation uh, against uh, AT&T and Verizon. So what's the, what's the, should we be concerned, worried, in favor, opposed? Yeah, this, is, this could be bad for consumers. Uh, now, there's this technology that every mobile device manufacturer, including Apple, including Samsung, 
including Google, wants to happen. It's called eSIM, or electronic SIM. Like all your phones right now, they have a tiny, tiny little card that basically has your account information on it and ties you into Verizon or AT&T or T-Mobile, whatever you're using. All these manufacturers would rather go to electronic, just a circuit that's inside your, your device that can be reprogrammed at will for new. So if you change from one carrier to another, or if you walk out of the store with one, you can just simply call a number uh, and uh, have it activated that way. The other problem with these physical SIMs is that now we're getting devices like wristwatches, the Apple Watch, where it's just nuts to make the space for that little tray and have a little thing in there. So everybody wants this electronic SIM. Now, AT&T and Verizon <laughs> have been sort of gotten together, and this is where the Department of Justice gets involved, they've gotten together to talk to the International Standards Bureau to say, wouldn't it be handy if there were a way for the carrier to lock this electronic SIM so that the user of the, the owner of this device could not go to another carrier before going to us first to ask for it to be unlocked? Uh, there were two, uh, a few months ago, the Department of Justice got a complaint from one hardware device manufacturer, which was later identified as Apple, and one carrier, which is supposed, to, which is theorized to be T-Mobile, saying that, look, these two companies are getting together to make this happen. They together uh, own, I think, 70% of the U.S. mobile market, and so this is where the Department of Justice says, we are going to need you to give us <laughs> the following evidence and the following documents to see how you've been working together and what you've been asking this company to do, well, excuse me, this the board to do. So it sounds like the Trump administration is actually working on behalf of the consumer in this case? The Department of Justice is on fire. They've been, they really? have been standing up for, they've been standing up for uh, uh, every, every consumer when it comes to antitrust. They, the, the guy the DOJ under Trump in sessions, you're talking, the recent DOJ. Because it's, remember, it's a big organization and there's, the, the person who's in charge of antitrust is very anti, he's doing his job. He is, uh, there are a lot of, there have been a lot of stories over the past few months regarding, like, it's the, the, the merger between uh, AT&T and Time Warner is going slowly because, once again, the antitrust people inside uh, the DOJ and inside, uh, inside other organizations are saying, no, this is bad. There's a reason why we said no to this a few years ago. The situation has not changed. It's the same people who are, uh, who are coming against the uh, attempted merger of uh, uh, T-Mobile and Sprint as mobile carriers because, again, less competition. We will, we will be down to only three national carriers in the U.S. This cannot be good for consumers. So I'm, I'm following, I'm learning more about this guy as his name keeps popping up and things I need to research, and I'm getting happier and happier to see his name pop up. As, sounds good. As happy as I am usually unhappy when I see Ajit Pai's name so <laughs> associated with something. So I guess those of us who said we were, were wrong when we said that... Uh, uh, the Time Warner problem had to do with Trump's not liking CNN. We were well, about may, that. well, may well, he actually have plenty to do with him not liking CNN. That's yeah, a, that's they're a not stumbling block exclusive. as well, but right. Okay, so it's so it's also this guy's really doing his antitrust. Job. We have time for yes, this for virtual Spotify. reality thing. Sure. Oh, the virtual reality. Yeah, thing. yeah we do. Okay, that's we'll an do interesting Spotify product. Later. Yeah, this is, tell us about this Oculus Go thing. Really cool. It was announced at the, again at the Facebook uh, keynote yesterday. It is a uh, hundred ninety nine dollar device that will give you virtual reality. So basically, virtuality, virtual reality games. Games, uh, virtual reality educational experiences, even like uh, Hulu and Netflix through these goggles. And it looks like what you have come to expect VR to look like, a, essentially a pair of scuba goggles that has essentially the guts of a two-year-old Android phone inside it and a tiny little hand controller so that you can click buttons and do stuff like that. So but it's still cumbersome in terms of the look. We've done it a few times on the radio, and it's really, ex I mean, not this product, but right. 
virtual reality on the show. Why are people so excited? Because the price point is so much lower? Because, of the, price, because okay. of the price point. And it's all in one. The, the only other devices we've seen so far are a set of goggles you're supposed to clip your own phone into, and those are really, really heavy, and they're kind of cumbersome, or $1,000 devices that even so, they require you to be plugged into a very high-performance mm -hmm. gaming PC in order to work. For $199, that's the price of, like a game, less than the price of a gaming system. That's the price at which not only are consumers going to be, hey, you know what, I got, we got our tax refund back, let's, let's buy it. We, we, they wouldn't spend 1000 bucks for this, but they'd spend $200 on this. And the super cool thing is that it's going to encourage developers to say, we had some ideas for VR, but we weren't going to do it if we weren't going to sell it to these 81 people who have mm -hmm. bought these super right. expensive things. But if that does become a popular platform, that will really goose people into developing great content for it. And so Netflix on VR is pretty good. Andy, Andy Nako, thanks as always. Thank you very, very it's good much, to talk Andy. To you. I really like the iPad. <laughs> it's really, it is really. Do you cool. use your iPad? I, I use my iPad all the time. I didn't know that. Yeah. It might, it, you're, there's a reason why you weighed it, and the reason is three hundred twenty-nine dollars for eight times better than the one you yes, have right now. Yes, and it doesn't weigh very much at all. Put right in your pocketbook. Anyway, Andy Notko joins us regularly. He's a tech writer and blogger. You can find his work at notko.com. That is I H A N T K O. Oh, N A T K O. N. Whoops. It took me twelve years to spell it right I -H -N -A -T -K -O. myself. I H N A T K O. Actually, we had a little typo there. Anyway, you can follow him at Anatko on Twitter as well. I-H-N-A-T-K-O. I have no idea how to spell this person's name. That's the mnemonic device. Wow, okay. that is All excellent. Right. But okay. you have to remember that. So what's the mnemonic <laughs> advice for the, the advice for that? Good to up, see you, Andy. Up next, Eunice, the Kennedy whose legacy may be the most enduring, is the subject of a terrific new biography by the... Former columnist for the Boston Globe, Pulitzer Prize winner of the Boston Globe, Eileen McNamara. She's going to join us next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. We are broadcasting live today from the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie and live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Ted Kennedy's legacy is getting renewed scrutiny by way of the film Chappaquiddick. And with the 50-year anniversary of Bobby Kennedy's uh, uh, death approaching, a new Netflix series examines his legacy as an icon of political idealism. But in a twist of the dynasty's dynamics, Eunice Kennedy is not to be overshadowed by her brothers. A new biography by Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Eileen McNamara, formerly of The Globe, looks at Eunice Kennedy's compassion, determination, and how she used them to spark a civil rights movement on behalf of children and adults with intellectual disabilities. It's called Eunice, the Kennedy Who Changed the World. Eileen will be at the Harvard Bookstore next Friday night, May 11th at 7 o'clock. Eileen, it's great to see you again. Yeah, you too, Jim. When was the last time you two saw each oh my other? Oh, Years buddies. and years ago. ago. Yeah, we used to hang out. We did. So I heard, yes, by did. the way. We did. Yes, we did. We were both columnists. I had been toiling away for years. Eileen writes six columns for the Globe, and she wins the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> I said, how the hell did this happen? I was very upset about it for years, but I've gotten over it now, Okay, Eileen. okay. I don't think so, actually. And you know something? Congratulations on this book. And one of the reasons I say congratulations besides the fact that I learned all this kind of stuff, is that it really never occurred to me. You know, you think of President uh, John F. Kennedy, you think of Bobby Kennedy, Attorney General, Presidential Kennedy, you think of Ted Kennedy, long time right. But the lasting legacy... Is hers. Is hers. Yeah. So tell us the thesis of your book. Well, so I guess my original thought is how easy it is to write women out of history. Yeah. Right? Really. Um, look at what she did. 
And, you know, we think of Special Olympics when we think of UNIS, but that's really only part of it. Almost all the pieces of legislation uh, that involve intellectual disabilities have her fingerprints on it. Uh, Jack got credit for it. Teddy got credit for it, but she drafted it. And, and by the way, we all, Special Olympics 50th anniversary, by the way, yes. one of the great achievements. We'll talk about that in a couple of seconds. But talk a little bit, Eileen, about the other things that, well, I was going to say are lower profile. Obviously, the Americans with Disabilities Act is not low right. profile. <laughs> not but exactly. start back with her brother, uh, uh, President Kennedy, and what he did early on as a result of her essentially I, lobbying him? Is, there, is yeah, that a fair? Yeah, I think there's no other way to describe, describe it. Describe what he did and what life was like for people with intellectual disabilities before that lobbying and commission was put together. So before Jack Kennedy became president, there was no federal legislation. There was a small piece of legislation that had been passed in 1958 for special education, for special ed teacher training, but tiny, tiny amount of money. Uh, by then, Eunice had pretty much hijacked the family charitable foundation, and she turned its attention toward intellectual disabilities. So Jack hadn't even taken the oath of office, and she got a commitment from him that he would uh, create a presidential panel on what we then called mental retardation. And she stacked it with the biggest experts, the best scientists, uh, the most activist parents, and she ran it. And interestingly enough, she wasn't a member of the presidential uh, panel on mental retardation because she said nepotism would look bad for Jack. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I don't so, think Bobby yeah. felt that way. So no. what are you did, did he do it? Did Jack, President Kennedy do it because she convinced them of the merits or because she was so relentless and his sibling that he decided, I'll do what she wants? Uh, no, uh, he, she convinced him on the merits. Every time I read a Kennedy biography, I got more and more frustrated to see Eunice portrayed as a, just basically a pain in the ass, and that Jack did what <laughs> she wanted because she was a pain in the ass. Well, she was a pain, but she was a pain that he listened to because he knew that on issues that mattered to her, she knew what worked. And on these issues, she knew what worked. Can you explain, by the way, for people who are listening and saying, well, why did she care about this stuff? Can you explain the Rosemary situation, the sibling yeah. situation, and what impact that had on Eunice's life? So her older sister, Rosemary, was born with mild uh, intellectual disabilities. Her schoolwork at the Kennedy Library indicates maybe she made it to about a fourth grade level of achievement. She, was, uh, she had all the social graces. She was well-trained as a young Kennedy woman. Beautiful. Beautiful. Looking. Absolutely the most beautiful Kennedy woman. Um, and, but as she got older and became an adolescent and a young woman, uh, mental illness compounded her intellectual disability. She was very angry. She struck out, uh, did a number on Honey Fitz uh, with her fists on the, uh, on the porch at Hyannisport at one point. And... Prefrontal lobotomy was a, it was an experimental surgery, and I think in a misguided, but not necessarily ill-intentioned uh, attempt to on cure... On the part of the father. On the part of Joe Kennedy. Uh, he had her lobotomized, and it left her totally incapacitated, couldn't walk, couldn't talk. And they hit her away, essentially, for... And then he hit her away, and he, uh, he didn't tell his children where she was. The younger kids, Teddy always said that he thought she was teaching ch children with intellectual disabilities in the Midwest, when in fact she was uh, institutionalized there. And what did this mean to Eunice? Well, I think there's a mix of rage and a little bit of guilt. Uh, she was complicit in some ways. She acceded to her father's demand that they don't visit her 
They don't talk about her. She just vanished. We're talking to Eileen McNamara. Her book is Eunice, the Kennedy who changed the world. But after Joe Kennedy died, she yeah. took some action regarding uh, her sister. What happened? Even before he died. Um, in 1961, Joe Kennedy had a massive stroke that left him unable to talk. As soon as Joe Kennedy lost his voice, Eunice found hers. And she brought Rosemary back into the heart of that family. And uh, she wrote a piece for the Saturday Evening Post that outed the Kennedy family as having someone in their family with intellectual disabilities. It's not an accident that that piece appeared in September of 62. Joe had a stroke in December of 61. So, the, And this was, of course, after JFK was already the president of the United States. Yes. yes. So, you know, the, the, um, the, you did a great interview on uh, in the Today Show, I think. We were talking about the book and and uh, Maria Shriver was there, and mm-hmm. Timothy Shriver was there, and Maria was talking about, uh, you know, that that uh, her the, the mother was kind of a pain in the butt, as you said before. Yeah. That Sarge was the nurturing yeah. um, uh, guy, um, but she also talked about there was a beautiful passage later in the book about Maria Shriver talking about how she romanticized the marriage of Ro- Rose Kennedy and. Joe, the mm-hmm. parents of JFK. Right. Tell us about that a little bit, what, what Maria's perspective was on her romanticizing that marriage. I think um, in Maria's perspective, which makes some sense to me, is you, you see it, but you don't see it. Yeah. Uh, you have the capacity to know and not know at the same time. She idolized your father idolized him, thought he was the most brilliant man in the world. Even though she, he treated her like a second-class citizen. Even though he absolutely overlooked her, she wrote a wonderful letter to him in the 1950s saying, you're spending all this effort on everyone's career, what about me? And the answer to that was, I don't see you, <laughs> you're mm. a woman. And uh, he didn't answer the letter as far as I could tell. But I, I, I think that it was impossible for her to accept that was true, that her father didn't see her. So she accepted her myth about him and about the marriage uh, because she needed to. She needed to. But she also talks in the same section about some things that I didn't know about. That um, Tell us about what Patrick Kennedy said about what Eunice did. And by the way, Eunice and, Char- and Sergeant Shriver were big Catholics. They were yes. in church all the yes. time. Yes, every day. So there, uh, um, you talk about Why don't her- you do a full disclosure and say you and Sarge were hanging out at the same church I used to see them a lot because <laughs> yes. they went to the same church I did in the summer times yep. and, and they would both sit in the front row. They would go to daily mass. Right. And um, it actually it's kind of a funny story, actually. Tell that's what I was Sar- hoping you Sergeant do. Shriver, he got Alzheimer's as yes. he got older. He always looked like a million bucks. He had the blue blazer on. Yes, he was gorgeous. dressed a very handsome man. They'd be in the front row and he would, you know, uh, used to be a Catholic way back when. I mean, the little handshake of peace. Yes, yes. Sarge would turn around and say inappropriate things to the women, like, great body, babe. (laughs) He's like 90 years old. But everybody kind of wrote it off and laughed because they knew that he had Alzheimer's and he wasn't in in a good place at that point. But anyway, um, um, Patrick Kennedy talks about uh, Eunice's interaction with Joan Kennedy, who struggled with alcoholism for a good part of her life. Tell us about that. She did. Um, uh, Joan wrote me a lovely letter. She was unable to sit to talk about Eunice, but she said she wished she could because she loved her dearly. And Patrick sort of illuminated why. Uh, As he said to me, who else but Eunice was there when my mother was at her worst and most vulnerable? Everyone else in the family turned away. 
never Eunice. She was always there for my mother. Uh, and that's sort of consistent with her life, which is you're down, you're vulnerable, uh, you're incapacitated, uh, you're my people. <laughs> yeah. And yet when, but she was also, you also talk about her in that same section as kind of the, the keeper of the flame. You talk about Christopher Lawford who had problems as a young man with heroin right. a, 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 abuse or uh, uh, Ken, the uh, Smith Kennedy. Who was the guy? William Smith. William Kennedy Smith, excuse right. me, that w was tried for a date rape case right. and was ultimately acquitted of a crime. Many people thought he committed. Right. She was a keeper of the flame in that regard. Right. I mean, she's a contradiction. I mean, most of us are, right? Yeah. None of us are, are all one thing or another. She was the most loyal <laughs> of the loyal Kennedys, and loyalty was a huge, enormous uh, quality in that family. And so she would... In the face of all evidence, she would defend anyone uh, that shared her last name with, uh, for anything. And tell us about when they would wheel Rose out in her very, very old age in the wheelchair down on Hyannisport and have all the photographers come take her picture. She was by then, what, 101 or something? Uh, yeah, I have to say, we in the media were all pretty complicit in that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Rose Kennedy, by the time she was 100 years old, was really incapacitated, but... But Eunice would give interviews to reporters and say, oh, yes, mother only goes out when she knows that her hat matches her jacket and she's very, very particular. And, you know, Rose's nurse was dressing Rose. Yeah. But she, uh, she, I think Eunice was so invested in the idea, which, frankly, her father had created for us all, this myth of this family from the very beginning. His greatest skill in business was public relations. You know, speaking of public relations... Uh, uh, and how the world treated people with intellectual disabilities before Eunice came on the show. I don't know if you've seen I had the other night at Chris Cooper and Mariana Leone oh, and, uh, and uh, uh, Dana Beebe who did this great film called Intelligent Lives about the right. possibilities of those with intellectual disabilities and how IQ tests are a disaster. And right. It's a wonderful film that's about to be in some sort of uh, release now. How fa I understand legislatively she was... And via government, whether it's through her brother or her other brother, Ted. Mm -hmm. uh, how far did public attitudes about these issues trail? I mean, the Special Olympics, in my estimation, as a person who has no expertise in the area, began to change everything. Absolutely, uh, it changed everything. But, but is that... Yes. What was the major force in terms yes. of the public? It was. I mean, she... And she, did she know that? when? I mean, yes. Is that part of her? Okay, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, as I say, she worshipped her father. And what was her father so good at? crafting public perception. If you're going to accept the idea of a Catholic president, the first thing you have to do is have, think differently about what does that mean to be a Catholic uh -huh. president. No, there isn't going to be a tunnel to the Vatican. Uh, <laughs> so he worked really hard on that. And uh, he did, she did the same thing. She learned that lesson. If you want to change people's attitudes, if you want to change the world's attitudes toward these children, let's change the way we see them. So put them out on the playing field. See that they're just kids mm. who want to play. You know, Eileen McNamara, whose book is Eunice, The Kennedy Who Changed the World, when you were on TV with me the other night, one of my favorite parts, of, I love these behind-the-scenes kinds of things. She lived with Brother Jack when he was she elected did. to Congress in the late 40s. Describe the scene in that 
Kennedy was in Georgetown. Is yeah, that it was, was in, in Georgia. Georgetown. Describe who came through. What was life, social life like in the late '40s with uh, Jack, soon soon to be president. Well, soon, decade later, president and Eunice Kennedy. Right. It was um, one of his aides said it was like a Washington hotel. Like there were uh, like a Hollywood hotel. There were celebrities and prep school friends and college buddies passing through all the time. Uh, Joe Elsop, the famous columnist, showed up for dinner one night and there was a half-eaten hamburger on the mantelpiece and all the furniture was overturned because they'd had a touch football game inside the townhouse. Um, they uh, They were young, they were brash, they were entitled, they were frankly spoiled rotten, and it showed. And Jack was a pretty lackluster freshman a congressman. She was on fire. She was working for the Justice Department, running a task force on juvenile delinquency. But when they came home at night, they had these grand dinner parties. And one of their frequent guests was Richard Nixon, who was himself a freshman up on Capitol Hill. And he tells the story of the end of a dinner party every time Uh, The women would get up and go to the parlor to gossip, and Eunice would go in with the men to the den and light up a big, fat stogie because she wanted to talk politics. And she didn't smoke Tipperillos. She smoked big, fat Cuban cigars, the exact same cigars that Jack smoked. How did Nixon and uh, young Jack Kennedy get along? Great. They they did. When they were uh, young men, they did get along quite well. She was also very tall for a woman at that. Uh, t- she was five, five ten. ten, and at one point, she, uh, I read where she weighed like one hundred and nine yeah. pounds. Yeah, most of her life. I think yeah. there's, you know, there's real issues in that family around weight. Yeah. You know, we had we came away with this idea of Rose as the national matriarch because she kept these detailed notes on her kids. Yeah. But there were often notes like, "Gain too much weight." You know, what was that yeah, about? I think was there was a little skinny. yeah, anorexia going on there. So the other thing that is fascinating, too, is, is um, th- their liberalism, their unabashed liberalism. Absolutely. You talk about this farm or whatever it was, this big, huge estate they had down, I guess it was in Virginia, mm-hmm. and um, fundraisers for Cesar Chavez right. and, and uh, the, uh, the uh, farm workers and... Tell us about this Joanne Woodward and Cloris Leachman thing. Oh, yes. Yeah. So they... Um, Joanne Woodward was, was the married to Paul Newman, I should say. The and a pretty great accomplished actress, in her own right, right, I should yeah. say. Yeah. 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 No, true. I'm true, true. sexist. Yes, you are. Paul with Newman was married to Joanne Woodward yeah, is what you meant to say. That's what you meant. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. No, uh, they were... Uh, Eunice and Ethel both had a thing about celebrities. Yeah. I mean, they were into the celebrity culture way before everybody else got onto it. At their parties, they used to have uh, a designated seat at every table for what they called the glitteries. And a glittery was obviously like a Hollywood celebrity or someone. And uh, Joanne Woodward and Cloris Leachman were hauled in to give tours of Timberlawn, which was their mansion they lived in, to help retire Sarge's debt. You know, when he ran for vice president yeah. in 72 yeah. and, and in 76 when he ran for president. And that's also where they had a lot of the early competitions among the kids with they the, did. The, the disabilities outdoors, yeah. right? Yeah, and here's another place where she got there so much f- before her brothers on major social issues. She called it Camp Schreiber. I guess it was the precursor to Special Olympics. But it was a bunch of kids playing in her backyard, swimming, riding her horses, uh, doing hurdles, all these kinds of things. She imported prisoners from the local reformatory, some of them in for violent crimes like kidnapping and murder. And she recruited them to be 
helpers at the camp because she thought prisoners, too, should have a second chance. Yeah. And uh, they did remarkable things in that backyard with, like, little Catholic school volunteers and prisoners. And yet she, and as much as she was um, definitely a feminist in terms of wanting to uh, have equal opportunities at yep. work and so forth and so on, she was pro-life from the Big Catholicism. Time absolutely. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Did she have something to do with the Hyde Amendment? Did she I get had, that right? Yes, she did. Okay. Yes, she did. Tell us about that. Okay, so Joe Califano tells me that in the 1970s, when they're trying to hammer out, what are, what are we doing about abortion? Yep. Because there's all these efforts to limit it. Uh, Eunice believed firmly that you'd never overturn Roe v. Wade. She thought that that was a non-starter. So no, why, she would never waste her energy on something that didn't work. So she tried to restrict it as much as she could in as reasonable a way as she could. And yes, it's called the Hyde Amendment, but Joe Califano says he's convinced that the wording of it came from Eunice Schreiber because she sent the wording to him uh, when he was uh, the secretary of HEW. Yeah, and the Hyde Amendment, for people who don't know, prevents federal funding for right. abortion, which is why people always point out right. that Planned Parenthood gets no federal funds right. to do abortions because of, the plan- because of federal funding. Right. They get funding for birth control and right. and, and, uh, sc- and by the way, screening. it's H-Y-D-E. He was a congressperson from Illinois who was very conservative on virtually everything. He was. Uh, everything. But, but he, to explain Eunice's position on this, this is completely consistent with her ethic of life. Yeah. I mean, she saw abortion as an existential threat to a fetus that might have Down syndrome, for instance. And she was prescient. 90% of fetuses that have mm-hmm. Down syndrome are aborted. Yeah. So, t- so tell us um, how you pulled this off. You got access <laughs> to a lot of documentation and uh, personal papers. Did you just call up and say, I'm Eileen McNamara, X of the Globe? How'd oh, you yeah, they were so <laughs> impressed when I called and said, yeah. I'm Eileen McNamara. I wrote those six columns that Marjorie That's talked right. about, and then all of a sudden... I got Pulitzer here, and I'll yeah. mess around. Yeah. How long did it take you to... to it uh, took about two and a half years to convince them. There's five of them, so, you know, it's like herding cats. Yeah. Uh, but mostly you had to convince Bobby and Maria, because they're the oldest. And it took a while, uh, but they turned over... 33 boxes of their mother's private papers that they had never read, which I thought was a remarkable act of trust because I told them you're not going to get to read the manuscript before I turn it in. They'd never read it. No. Was it exciting being there as part of sort of living history? It was fabulous. um, Robert Cairo, who is Lyndon Johnson's great biographer, said the role of the biographer is to turn every page. Mm. And what was so remarkable in going through these boxes is you never knew what you'd get. She befriended a World War II spy who spied for Japan when she was a volunteer at Alderson Prison in West Virginia. There's this great letter from this woman who then, it turns out, went to her wedding and gave her a box of stationery from Tiffany's. Wow. And it's great. Like, where are you going to find that? And Tim Shriver had said to me, God, you're so persistent in demanding access to these boxes. I don't know what you think is going to be in there. Because I think there's going to be nothing in there but VHS tapes of Maria on the Today Show. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't a single one. That's not a, a single one. Good line. 
Okay, Eileen, Eileen congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you very much for coming in. Eileen Mattenmer, as we said, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and director of the journalism program at Brandeis. The new book, and it's a great book, is Eunice, the Kennedy Who Changed the World. Eileen's going to be at the Harvard Bookstore Friday night, May 11th, 7 o'clock. Eileen, thank you very, very Good much to see you, for coming Thanks. in. Up next, thank we're you. opening up the lines because Jim wants to talk about this. <laughs> Asking you if you are rejoicing, you, rejoicing at the first real yes, taste of are. summer after yes, a brutal are. long winter and a sub-zero spring. It's 80-something degrees outside. How happy are you? That's next on 89.7 WGBH. Boston Public Radio, we're broadcasting live from our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Mardrigan live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. So as Marjorie says, it's 80 degrees and sunny outside. Do you know where your space heater is? That's right. Today is the first real taste of summer, long overdue, that await us. And the air conditioning is already at full blast. Could we just do without the AC today? Open up the windows, bask in the soft summer air oh, that we've been denied for nearly a year. <laughs> 877-301-8970. Marjorie mocked me for wanting to talk about this, but let me just say it in one sentence. Uh-huh. Today changes what, Marjorie? Everything, Everything. Jim. Everything. Are you among the lucky who can take advantage? of today's weather. You're like us, working indoors in what feels like a meat locker, but we love the library. I should be careful there. How are you observing? <laughs> we do love the library. Today's balmy weather. How great did it feel this morning to step outside and not feel the edge of winter in the air? 877-301-897. Here's my thesis, which I share mm-hmm. with our wonderful listeners every okay. year. When summer finally breaks, and I know it's only going to be 80-something <clears throat> Excuse me, for a few days, then it's going to be the 60s, but then it'll get hot again. It does change everything. It changes not how we, uh, not only how we dress. Yeah. It changes how we relate. Don't be dismissive. <laughs> it changes how we relate to other human beings, how they relate to us. We are less guarded. We are more open. And what's that great uh, poem that Irvin, what's his name? A girl, what's that great? Oh, uh, Girls in Summer Dresses. One of, uh, it was a short story by uh, Owen Shaw. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, my God. It's oh unbelievable. Oh, my God. So, in any case, and guys in T-shirts and whatever <laughs> in the spirit of... Equals something other. 877-301-8970. It really, I mean this. I'm not being hyperbolic. I'm not doing this for effect. Days like this, the first day like this for me, absolutely changes my relationship to the... I'm not going to interrupt you as much tomorrow. It's a whole new time <laughs> okay. for well, me. You know, this is one of the reasons why it is good to live in New England, even though we have these... Excuse me, I have hiccups. Horrible, Ooh, horrible winters. And, and, and it's really, this winter was really brutal with all the Northeasters. And then we had a Northeasters. Nor'easters, we call them too. Whatever they You've are. only lived here your whole life. There's no reason Yeah, the bad be. storms is another way to put it. Because if you live in, 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 I said before I went to college in California, if you live in a place like California, you never have this. You never have that first spectacular day. So you, t- you take it for granted. And that's one of the wonderful things about the seasons in New England, even though the seasons are getting kind of screwed up by climate disruption. That's what makes it Marjorie nice. is trying to be poetic because I, I have been poetic. Well, you were waxing But she doesn't feel it like I feel it. There is no, I'm, I'm going to say one more thing. Uh-huh. There is no, ama- no description that can capture the joy I feel on the first 
day like this. It's just spectacular. I don't know how you guys feel. 877-301-8970. If you want to complain briefly about the fact that the air conditioning, well, I mean, do whatever you want to do. Well, it's that's the first great, de facto day of summer. That's a great thing to complain about. What is that? going to ruin the mood right away. Well, why is don't it, you? Why, why do people air condition so it's like 60 degrees inside? I don't know. So it's like Margaret. 90 degrees outside. You get your short sleeve shirt on, your short, short sleeve dress. You have a dress on, yeah. no stockings, and you go in and oh, it's 60. Horrible. So you basically have to bring your parka to you the office. You know whose I don't know whose fault it is. Teachers Tim. Union, Marjorie. 877 301 Let's take okay, some calls. Take so some I calls. guarantee every one of these people feels like I do. Hannah in New Hampshire, thank you for calling. Are you reveling in this beautiful weather I today? I hope so, Hannah. What's up? We are reveling. Good I for you. I grew up um, in Thailand, and I hate winter. And, um, of course, we live in New England, so... It's always an adjustment every year, and I've got two little ones, a two-year-old and a six-month-old, and even though the baby is super grumpy and teething, I put him in the car, and we're headed to York to go to the beach in oh. Maine. See? Oh, nice. <laughs> that is fabulous. And so how do you feel? Forget just what you're doing, Hannah. How do you feel in your inner self, in your heart, oh, on a day okay. like that? Describe <laughs> it to us. Like, I'm so much less cranky. Exactly. I'm not as snappy, although nope. when my toddler didn't want to go outside because it was too hot, I was like... You get outside. We're not, we're not inside. Well, today. you can teach him a lesson. You can put him on the roof like Romney put Seamus on the roof. Really teach him <laughs> okay. a lesson. Hannah, have I'll fun at the it. beach. You, uh, your spirit is exactly mine on a day like this. Jim, how do you feel in, in your heart today? Well, how do I feel in my heart? Uh, I feel uh, expansive towards my fellow <laughs> men and women. Ordinarily, I frown on many of them. Today... I embrace them. I embrace okay. almost all of them. All right. Not all of That's them, but almost all of them. Diana in Lexington, are you feeling expansive and embracing all your fellow men and women, is. too? I bet she is. Keep mocking everybody. What do mm-hmm. you feel, Diana? Go ahead. Hi, how are you? Excellent. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. Thank you, thank you. Um, I'm, heading back from, I'm heading back from Plum Island right now. We're banding birds, and spring is officially here. We exactly. Hundreds of birds in the nest. It was excellent. Boy, poor yeah. Plum Island. How much longer do you think it's going to be there, Diana? I don't know. Yeah. yeah who e- knows? Every time you go up there, the water line gets closer and closer. You know, but Diana, this is typical Marjorie talking about when Plum Island's going to be underwater <laughs> while so, you and I are trying I know, to luxuriate in the spirit of the moment. So how did it feel to hear that bird doing whatever birds do out there? It was great. It was so. I used to live in California, like Marjorie was saying. It's yeah. not the same luxurious, wonderful feeling because there's not this significant change of seasons. It it really is wonderful. Diana, you said it beautifully. Thank you very much for the call. Listen to this. Eric just emailed and said, no fooling. My office is closing today at three because it's the first nice day of the year. Mm. Wow. How about that? You know what I'm going to do to show that my heart is really in this? I'm going to stop doing this radio show at two on the dot today. And I'm just, I'm going to go outside and enjoy myself. Here's what Barbara says. I'm not happy at all. Too hot. I much prefer the winter to the summer. We, could really, we never have spring here. It's always cold, 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 wet, 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 cold, windy, wet, warm for one day. Then it's hot, hot, hot. Not a fan. And how do you react to that, Marjorie? Tell the truth. How do you react well, to that? Well, she did put a, kind of a damper on the mood. She did. I think, think she did. She 877-301-8970. If you want to do what was her name Barbara just did, that's fine. But I think we should share yeah. the good feeling that Paul most of us feel. The pollen is coming. Too well, much pollen. Not today, though. Mm-hmm. Let's go to Andre in uh, Ashland. You're on Boston Public Radio. Andre, thanks for the call. Hi. 
How are you guys? I love you guys. Well, I'll see you. Thank you. I feel great today. Marjorie obviously is a misanthrope. She does not. <laughs> Go ahead. Stop picking on Marjorie. Stop picking on Marjorie. I'll take too, it back. Right? Go ahead. Yeah. What's up, Andre? Uh, well, I was waiting. I was hoping for this weather on the weekend because my air conditioner is going in the window on Saturday. Mm. And it's muggy in the house now. And yeah. it's muggy outside. Yeah. It's a beautiful day. I love this weather, but I was waiting for maybe three more days for it to come. Yeah, but, but it's you... here, so I'll deal with it. That's good of you, Andre, since you pretty much have no choice. Do you, do you know what I'm yeah. saying there, Andre? Yeah. Well, I, I could go I, I could go to the grocery store, sit in the grocery store all day. Yes, yeah, there's you know? nothing better than sitting in the uh, hot food bar aisle and just taking <laughs> yeah. it all out. Andre, good to talk to you. Enjoy the day. Thanks so much for your call. You know, now that I have an elderly dog, I'm supposed to put the air conditioner on uh, in the room where I live. And you didn't do I, it? No, no, because do you have your air conditioners in the windows yet? No. No. Well, a lot of us are caught, caught oh. by surprise here, Jim, so... I'm so what's your about dog doing? Harry the P, best dog from C to C. Well, I hope he's okay. We'll see, find out soon. I'll let you know if things don't work out. Oh, well that's, not, that's horrible. That's not even funny. <laughs> not I don't know funny. why you say that. Steal him lots of water, though. 877-301-8970. One of us is luxuriating in the 80-degree temperature that is long, long overdue after an absolutely horrible April, and Marjorie is tolerating the discussion. Rachel in Plymouth, you're on Boston Public Radio with me, Jim Browdy, and Marjorie Egan. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Rachel. Hi, thanks so much for taking my call. Yep, you too. Thanks for calling, I mean. Go ahead. We are feeling so great. I'm heading over to Brockton High School, and we're going to be cleaning up the pond on their campus today. Really? That's very nice. Well, it is very nice, but I have to say, when the first part of it, I'm sure that's a good deed. When you have the first 80-degree day and you say you're celebrating by going over to Brockton High School, (laughs) doesn't have the je ne sais quoi to a pond. To I a know. pond. They're going to clean up a pond. That's lovely. So how do you feel, uh, as Marjorie has mocked me when I've asked this of other mm-hmm. callers, how do you feel in your innards, in your heart, on a day like this, Rachel? I am totally with you, Jim. I'm one of those people that gets giddy and just wants to run around outside I'm... and gets very excited when the warm weather comes back for us. I, I feel exactly the same way. You said it well, and Rachel, enjoy cleaning the pool or the pond or whatever at Brockton High and send us send them our best down there. Here's Valerie from Brookline. What'd she say? I'm totally with Jim, she says. Every year on the first day like this, I feel a sense of euphoria. I had a bonus. The window ACs went in today, so there you go. It really, it is, it is great. It's like, and you know what? Also, so unbelievable. What's happened in the last couple of days? Very even high before pollen today. Everybody's I know it is, about but that. get very, over very that. Bad. That's very okay. Bad. You'll you'll survive. Yep. Very bad. When you drive by a tree in your neighborhood, I'm sure this happens in Brookline, mm-hmm. that had nothing blossoming, and all of a sudden it explodes yesterday or today. That's not thrilling to you. It's very thrilling to me, Jim. Well, obviously, it's not, Marjorie. <laughs> What is wrong with you? I no, mean, really. nothing. I love the. Are nice you weather. unhappy because no, I'm as happy as I am? I love the hot weather. It's just, it's just odd to listen to you waxing on about this. You know what you're like. Yeah. You're, you're sort of like. I'm not Gore- sure if you really mean it. What's that line from Gore Vidal that uh, you've said so many oh, times? What did he oh, say about his fellow yeah, authors? Yeah, the late writer Gore Vidal. He compl- uh, when asked how he felt when one of his other uh, friends writes a book and the book gets totally panned, <laughs> and he's a close friend of yours. He said. In truth, my heart leaps with joy. Well, that's how you would like me to be miserable <laughs> like you are today, no, but just, I am not. I'm suspicious. I'm, su- I'm suspicious. Well, I'm of not your, that your happy euphoria. that often. I am. I think there's reason for you to be suspicious. But you know, you've known me for 20 years. I've known you for a long time. This hot weather is something that really yep. does it for you. You're me. a hot weather guy. And You're it's a long over. And there's summer dresses uh, kind of guy. Exactly. Going to get on the subway on the way home and 
See well, that's not really. That was, by the way, to say that to David Duchovny was really inappropriate. <laughs> he had no idea what I was talking about, which is really pretty shocking. Is I know. It, since, is it not for a good-looking guy well, from New especially York? especially since he wrote a pretty sexual thing about subways, subways and yeah. you and he has something to bond over there. Apparently we don't. Peter from Holden, are you, like Jim, luxuriating in the beautiful weather today? Hi there. Absolutely, Marjorie. I have to tell you, I don't get it. I listen to you. You're wonderful. But I, it's a little bit of a ding, Mar- Marjorie. i got to tell it's you. It's okay. It's okay, Peter. I can take pent it. Up, pent up New Englanders. I save music. I love music. I save music for a day like today where I roll down my windows and I play very, very loud. I try not to drive too fast because all of a sudden the foot gets a little heavy. Yeah. I'm really enjoying it. However, my wife trumped me. She looked at me about 730 this morning, got up got in the car, and about 15 minutes ago pulled into Nosset Light Beach in East Ham and will be staying the rest of the week there. Oh, oh, yes. Oh, God, good for her. Good for her. Yeah, she went gardening. She went gardening. And I'm not sure if gardening at Nosset Light Beach is going to help us, Marjorie. Yeah. But, you know, she went gardening. So uh, I love you know, that. That's that, where she is. And that I'm is driving beautiful. And I'm driving down the bike with my windows open. Okay, well, thank you very much, Peter. There's a man after your own heart. You're going to plug in Mustang Sally on the way back to the station, aren't you, Jim? Well, no, I'm not. <laughs> but you know who Liam Martin is from uh, CBS Newscast here? Yes. He tweeted, I can't find it. He tweeted me a little while ago on YouTube, but of course you don't check your uh, mm-hmm. Twitter feed, saying that he is driving around town. I'm paraphrasing, but Liam, we want to thank you. But it, it was remi- I was reminded by the prior caller, driving around town with his windows wide open, blasting Boston public oh, radio. That I mean, makes how me good happy. does that feel? Do you see Lucille? Liam, thank you. She just sent a, a picture from Revere oh. Beach, which is getting pretty crowded. People are out there on the shore on Revere Beach. So there you go. I'm with you in spirit. Okay, let's go to uh, Alex in Pro- oh, Provincetown. Hi, Alex. Hey, Alex. What's up? Hi, Jim and Marjorie. The weather is wonderful here. Good. Couldn't be any better. Gorgeous. And what is it doing for you, Alex? It's especially in a place like Provincetown where it's so quiet in the winter and you don't see anyone. Just being able to see all the stores and restaurants open and people in the streets, everyone's smiling. It's just a wonderful place to be. Would you not say it's life-giving, Alex? Would you not say that? I, I completely agree. The whole, and everyone feels it. The whole town does. Except for Marjorie. Alex, thank you. Calling in from Provincetown. By the way, I lived in Provincetown one winter when I was a kid. Do you ever spend any time winter in Provincetown? I've it been is so, there briefly. so beautiful because Commercial Street that usually is so packed you almost can't move even though it's great even in summer. There's virtually nobody, only a couple of restaurants, a couple of stores open. This barren, beautiful winter. And then as Alex says, it all of a sudden explodes on a day like this, May 2nd, and it's 80 degrees and all the world except for you is fine. Really? No, Jim, Jim is in an explo- explosive mood. I'm in an exploding mood. I am. And you think this is phony. This is so real. You don't know real if you okay. don't know how real okay. this is. Okay. Well, you did show up without your, your kind of ratty sweatshirt today, Jim. I did not, I'm not wearing a sweatshirt today. I'm not wearing a ratty sweatshirt. I actually have a relatively new jacket that has no holes in it, and I did that just to celebrate the first 80 degrees. Diane from Fairhaven, are you, are um, you swooning and celebrating today I and bet. exploding like Jim? I am exploding. Go I, ahead, Diane. I, I am. I can't wait to just Ooh. get home. We have a beautiful bike trail along the water in Fairhaven, and I'm going to go down there and take a little walk or a ride or something. But I don't know if you guys, in my little neighborhood... Uh, middle 
school boys, they start dressing for summer, like mid-March. <laughs> they're the most optimistic group I've ever seen, and they will wear those shorts. I don't care if it's raining, sleeting, whatever, and they just crack me up every year because they're just dying for summer. <laughs> That was a great Diane, one, Diane. Fair thank you a very for the call. You can bring up the shorts pretty soon, Jim. We can have a dis- whole discussion on when men should wear shorts. Why do you, <laughs> by the way, I, I was going to wear shorts today, but yeah, in all truth, the reason I did not wear them, and this is horrible because I should be strong enough to just assert myself, is because I could only take so much ridicule from you today. <laughs> Why do you find it? I, men are, we can't, I mean, men, it's a comfortable yeah. way to live. Okay. But you, for some reason, have this bug up your whatever. <laughs> About men and me in particular in shorts. I'm not going to wear ankle height white socks with my sandals, so get over it kind of thing. I was going to wear sandals today, too, but I figured that would really put you over the edge. Okay. We only have a minute left, so quickly. we do? Okay. Bill in Arlington. Thank you for calling, Bill. Got to be fast, Bill. Welcome. Hi there. Hi. Hi. I just wanted to say, first of all, I wear shorts year-round. Good for you. you Wow. Do you have nice Uh, legs? uh, I don't know. That's my wife. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Go ahead. What's your point here? Uh, my point is that uh, this is why we live in New England. Yes. It's, exactly. Uh, it's an awesome, awesome, beautiful day out there. It's great. But then uh, come come fall, you get the beautiful foliage. And, it's, again, it's awesome. It's life-giving. And then you get the beautiful winter days. You get the beautiful, crisp winter, clear days. That's why we live here. That's why it's all good. Bill, that was wonderful. So upbeat. Not downbeat. Not not. Uh, it, it's the opposite. What's the opposite of expansive? Inexpansive. Inexpansive, kind of... Kind contracted. Of contracted, that's right. Well, Jim, I guess uh, people were very happy with you, and people agree with you that it's a beautiful day. Get out there and enjoy it. So, well, I, I, I'm with them, too. <laughs> thank you very much for uh, well, thank you. this expansive and explosive uh, session of Boston Public Radio. You're going to feel the same way when you go outside, by the way. And thank you all for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Thank you to the people that came down to the Boston Public Library. really appreciate people coming down to see us. Thank you very much. Uh, tune in tomorrow. We're going to have Andrew Cabral, the former sher- sheriff of Suffolk County, is going to be here. Shirley Leung, a business columnist for the Boston Globe. Jonathan Alsop, our wine guy, to tell us about spring and summer wines. We want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murs, Amanda McGowan, Tori Bedford, Jason Tereski, Molly Boykon, Christina Bieni, our engineer, John the Claw Parker. And today's engineer on site is Eddie Hickey. Special thanks to the folks at the fantastic news feed Cafe, Jim Browdy, what is on your expansive, explosive television show tonight? Well, I have to say, I can only remember half of what we're doing, and the half is actually pretty impressive. You and I on the radio have been talking about a lot about this museum in uh, in Montgomery, Alabama. Oh, yes. It's going to commemorate the horror, the terrorism of lynching through the years in this country. Two local academics, one from MIT, one from Northeastern, who worked on at least a piece of that project and have been working on the broader topic of restorative justice for years. They're both going to join me tonight, and they have an incredible story about one of the victims of, uh, of this horrible terror in our country's history. Hope you have a beautiful afternoon, Jim. And I will have a beautiful. You know why? Why? Because I'm feeling expansive. My heart is exploding with happiness because of the weather, <laughs> and maybe yours someday will, too. <laughs> I'm Marjorie I am Jim Browdy. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow, and have a wonderful afternoon in this gorgeous weather. Bye.